Hey everybody, Clint Fosslu here and welcome to the 30th edition of the Clint Fosslu podcast series. It's a special one today, it's a Y series and today we are joined by Christy Munro. The reason why this is a special one is up to date, all the Y series have been focused around dudes or guys. Uh, that has been conscious because obviously the idea of the podcast when I started out was to help divorced men specifically as things have evolved as everything's you know as in life uh, everything's changed uh, it's just time and the time is right for me to start getting amazing women who've also lived amazing lives and followed their why and no better person that we ha- do we have to do the first why series for a female is Christy Munro now Christy for those who don't know is a surf life-saving uh, legend in Australia she's two times world champ Australian captain order of Australia in the Hall of Fame for Australia sport, life-saving, as well as a sort of a national level athlete and many other things. So she certainly does make an exceptional guest uh, for the first Y series for female. In this uh, in this podcast, we we chat to Christy all about um, you know her life journey growing up on the coast here where where we live and just how she sort of navigated her way through to becoming a world champion athlete and eventually you know captaining Australia at the world champs, which is a pinnacle of a career for interesting part and and you know i i know a lot of women that have gone through that and a lot of friends wise have dealt with that but you know christy is very open and vulnerable about how she struggled you know with, with her kids and really struggled from a depression point of view i guess you can call it of not leaving the house because her, her kids were you know struggled to sleep in a younger age and really opens up how for seven years she didn't leave the house so to speak as she refers to it and and then you know how she sort of came out of the funk and got back into the ocean got back to her wine her passion and and sort of you know then talk through the rest of her life she's also you know, brave enough to open about how to divorce and how that rocked her world, and 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 then you know, on a on an uplifting sort of perspective, how you know she's navigating a new life, working at the University of the Sunshine Coast, focusing on sort of elite athletes. So it's an amazing episode. If you are struggling from from divorce, um, please, you know, as always, all the Finding Your Why series. Um, the courses are all available online, so clintforsley.com forward slash help me. I'm also offering group and one-on-one coaching now, so clintforsley.com forward slash coaching. I just want to thank Christy so much for her time and for welcoming me into her home. It is the right Christy, as it turns out. It's an absolute amazing episode. I know you're going to love it, so strap and enjoy, and we'll see you on the other side. Clint Fosley here and welcome to the 30th edition of the Clint Fosley podcast. We are joined by Christy Munro. Christy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you so much for welcoming me into your home, your beautiful home here on the Sunshine Coast. How's your day been? A bit miserable outside with the weather today, um, which I would say is uncommon from the Sunshine Coast, yeah. but we do come into a bit of rain this time of the year. But yeah, relaxing morning so far. So. So I was sitting, sitting in shorts and t-shirts complaining about the weather. I, I know. know. <laughs> Context, right. So Today is a special episode, um, being for those uh, frequent to the podcast, I do a lot of the Y series, which is all about men and men following their passion and their dreams. And I got a lot of feedback from especially all my mates' wives saying, why don't you do the thing, same thing for women? Because women have inspirational stories as well. So I reached out to Christy, who was kind enough to be the first Y series guest for as a, as a female. Um, so thank you so much for, for agreeing to do it. Yeah, my pleasure. I feel a bit of pressure being the first <laughs> no, you'll be fine. With, um, with your audience, but I think, yeah, I think it sort of transpires across genders. So hopefully, um, yeah. yeah, there's something in that for everyone. Absolutely. 
Right, so let's get going. As we as we as we always do, we tell a story. Where did you grow up? Uh, where did where did it all begin for you? Well, I actually grew up here, not not in this house, but in this suburb, Alexandra Headlands. Yep. is actually where I grew up. Um, I was born in Canberra, but mum and dad left there when I was three, so I don't really have any memories of Canberra. And um, mum and dad are really big travellers, so they travelled around with myself and my two brothers for a bit over a year around Australia, just in a tent. Um, exploring and I think their plan was always to settle here on the coast but I think they just wanted to make sure that they were picking the best spot yeah um yeah and so um we got here um after that year I was had turned four and they built a house just up on the hill at Alex and that's where I grew up um so I've been really lucky to travel a lot myself extensively but I've never really found a place I would rather live so that's why I'm still in the same Suburb. The same suburb. That's awesome, man. <laughs> yeah. And and your brothers, older or younger? Um, one of each. So I'm in the middle. So okay. I've got an older brother and a younger brother. Okay, brilliant. And and did they? Uh, when you were kids, were they also competitive athletes as well? Was it a was it a busy household, or what did it look like? Yeah, definitely. They were both. Um, yeah, both as as active and competitive yeah. as myself. Um, probably more talented, but maybe just a little bit less <laughs> motivated. <laughs> Um, so, but yeah, really up until we sort of all left school, um, we were all really into our sports yeah, and yeah. training and everything. So where did you go to school at the coast at that time? Um, so Malulabar Primary yeah. School. So could just walk or ride our bikes there, which is where my, um, two kids are going now. Nice. Um, so classrooms yeah. are still all the same. <laughs> Have they got aircon now at least? They do. <laughs> but yeah. not much else has changed though. Yeah. Um, and I went to Mountain Creek High School. So that was just brand new when I went there. Um, so when I started, it was just grade eights and then the next year, nine yeah. and eights and then ten. So we're still only a pretty small school. Um, now it's massive, now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, one of the biggest ones, I think. Um, and will your kids, I mean, I know I'm not sure how old your kids are, but will they go to Martin Creek as well and follow your path? Or? Yeah, I don't know. They're, they're six and eight, so I've got okay. a few more years to decide. Um, so, yeah, I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't know um, where they'll <laughs> sort of end up. Yeah. Um, but, but probably most likely, yeah. Mm, brilliant. So from a surf life-saving perspective, um, when did you fall into it and what, as a kid can you remember? I mean, you know, for those who haven't been to Sunshine Coast, it's a very coastal, beachy place. Uh, what, what did you get up to as a kid and how did you sort of fall into surf life-saving? Was it through Nippers or your dad or how did that work? Yeah, um, both of those things. Um, so my dad's originally from Brisbane, um, and so he would spend his weekends, you know, as everyone sort of did. There wasn't really much of a settlement here, especially in Alex. Mm. Um, the club was um, founded by um, a group of members from Mumbai. And so a lot of the patrolling members would, you know, hitchhike or whatever up on the weekends for yeah. Brizzy and stay in the dorm rooms and, um, and then head back after the weekend. So Dad sort of did that a lot um, when he joined in the 60s. Classic. And uh-huh. did he compete as well? Yeah. yeah. So um, he was. Success, a, I mean, as a, at a top level or? Yeah. Dad was a swimmer. So yeah. um, that was his thing. And um, yeah, we'd win national medals and things oh, like wow. that. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so I think he always hoped to introduce me to the surf club and to nippers. Um, yeah. So dad's obviously a life member at the club yeah. um, there. And um, so yeah, he exposed me to lots of different sports as a kid. Um, and. Nippers wasn't one that I was really fond of when I was young. Um, so I, I did, did join the club when I was seven but didn't really do much um, in the first few years because yeah. I was pretty frightened of the ocean and, um, 
Yeah, I didn't. I didn't have much interest in nippers, kind of at all, um, until I was maybe eleven. Yep. Um, and that's kind of when you transition up onto the fiberglass boards, and I guess competition sort of more starts um, at that age. You can start to um, trial for Queensland teams and things like yep. that all around that age. And so, Dad was kind of happy for me to sort of just fluff around really at nippers up until that age, and that's when he sort of. Um, you know, I think sort of said to me, well, I'm going to teach you how to paddle a board and, yep. um, and all of those things. So that's when I really started to, to get into it. And any, I mean, did you start surfing at a young age living on the coast? Not so much. Like, I don't know, probably just because mum and dad, you know, they didn't grow up um, as surfers. They yeah. grew up more in, on the sports side of things. So I didn't actually pick up surfing until I was um, maybe 16, 17. Okay. Um, when I sort of taught myself to surf for the first time. Before that, like I was on the beach every day and growing up in the ocean, yeah. but um, yeah, not really ever on a surfboard. So that, yeah, that sort of started a bit later for me. And any other sports as a kid? I mean, you know, netball's big here, uh, AFL, my daughter, well, my daughters play every sport, hockey. Did, did you get involved in all the other sports as well? I did, yeah. I played hockey briefly, yeah. um, netball for quite a long time. Yeah. Played netball. Um, triathlon, um, athletics uh, was really it was a big one for me. Which disciplines? Um, middle distance running okay. was, was my thing. So you like suffering, in other words. Yeah. So <laughs> unfortunately, I would have liked to have been talented over a hundred meters or a two hundred yeah. meters. But okay. um, I was a sprinter. Oh, like short and sharp is done. Chose well. <laughs> I wish. Um, but yeah, 800, 1500 were my okay. track events, yeah. and, and then um, I was riding to cross country running as well. Um, yeah, so they were sort of the main things that I spread my time across. And from a competitive aspect, I mean, obviously you've achieved a lot in your life. When when did you, yeah, especially having kids myself, let me rephrase it, you can see some people have that, that animal in them, that competitiveness, and others don't. Mm-hmm. When did you yourself realise that you actually probably hate to lose and that you are competitive? <laughs> you know, when, when did that kind of come to the foreground? Yeah, yeah. Um... I don't know, like I probably wouldn't have described myself as a competitive kid by nature. I was yeah. really, really quiet and shy, um, timid. Um, so I think where sport became um, really important to me was because of all of those things, because I was so shy, um, you know, I didn't really feel, and this wasn't a bad thing, but mm. um, looking back I probably didn't really feel very seen or heard or um, I didn't have something to push me forward in life um, in a way that it didn't mean I had to do it myself by talking. Yeah. <laughs> so um, when I discovered as a young kid that I was really talented at sport, all of a sudden it just made life so much easier. You know, people want to be your friends, people know who you are. Yep. Um, and it, it breaks down so many of those barriers that would have been so hard for me had I not had this talent in sports. Yep. So um, it really formed my identity um, from a young age um, because without that, I think I just would have been very much, you know, in the background because of how shy I was. Yep. Um, so, yeah, so I kind of, um, you know, discovered that this was the one thing that I could really hang on to. It was um, it was what made me me. Um, and so, yeah, I think I just gravitated towards it and um, the more I obviously did it, the better I became yep. and, and just the more it became part of me. So I can't really remember what my life was like 
before sport because I started so young and it became such a part of me from such a young age. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, are any other part of your family introverts? Was it just you? Was it just, just kind of? Um, Yeah, not so much my brothers. I'm trying to think, you know, maybe my parents when they were younger. My dad's a pretty quiet guy. Like, dad, unless he's got something important to say he just doesn't talk so if he's talking to you you know it's, you listen yeah. yeah you know it's something i'm talking all the time but i mean some people are like when they yeah. speak you listen right? yeah you go, oh. so dad's one of those people yeah. like unless he's got something that's really necessary and important to say um so yeah probably i probably take after my dad um more so in that in that cool. sense so from what i picked up uh, researching you before um, you, you were very successful at a young age in multiple sports, um, sort of, you know, whether it was state or national level. Um, what I've got jotted down here was athletics, kayaking, surf life, and triathlon. And there's probably some stuff I've missed <laughs> in there as well. Like how, how did you, as a, as someone who has a 15 year old and 13 year old, how, how did you juggle that as a kid? Because I spend my life driving my kids to sport is basically my job. But how did you juggle all of that at such a higher level as a kid? Um, and the school stuff. Can you think mm-hmm. back about that? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I obviously loved it um, yeah. because I don't remember ever thinking, you know, this is my life and it's it's hard work. But, um, yeah, I, I was sort of training before school and after school, you know, for as long as I can remember because I was involved in so many different sports. So mm. to try and fit everything in, um, it really is a juggle. Um, and I, I think I was lucky that I was exposed to so many different sports, though. So, um, you know, some kids who, um, you know, for whatever reason might be might have that sole focus from a really young age, yeah. um, I think it would be harder to have the longevity out of a sport when, when you don't have that variety. So, um, yeah, I was fortunate that my parents, you know, my dad especially because he had the, the love of sport like myself, um, yeah, he was really happy to expose me to the different new, yep. newer sports that weren't sort of the ones that I was doing every day. Sort of um, athletics and um, surf were probably my my biggest ones, but then I got to dabble in kayaking and triathlon and netball and and those other ones really for as long as I wanted to do them. Yep. Um, and it got to the point, um, you know, after I'd sort of left school, um, where I really had to decide. Um, which path I was going to take because, yeah, you know, by those late teens, you really probably have to yeah, make specialise. Yeah, take a path. Mm. So uh, two questions. Um, first first question, um, uh, naive perception. Um, but for, for what you do as an I, like an, an athlete, the training is huge. The volume is huge um, from what I understand. Is that a fair assumption? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Couldn't have picked a sport with probably more hours needed to train. Oh, except for triathlon because it's a multidiscipline yeah, sport. Yeah. As well, but I mean, I just from what I understand, like the Olympic swimmers, and we'll get to you dealing with them later. But their volume is just ridiculous. Mm. I mean, the amount of hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, and that's just one of your disciplines. That's right. Firstly, and and secondly, um, just sticking to the the teenage kid theme, I guess, um, and and the work you're doing now with the USC, I, you know, I haven't grown up in an, an environment where I was meant to be a you know a national athlete. I guess that was the expectation. Do you? And, and I'm, I'm, I'm the exact opposite of my kids now, right? Because mm. I just want them to do what they love. Do you see kids these days who come through the system, you know, with that single focus in sport, having burnout, having that sort of freak out because they are so – because it's, it's all or nothing, right? They're all their chips in one basket. What's your perception on that, firstly? And second, or I'll give you my opinion because I'm opinionated on this one, is that unless you're so exceptionally good – 
like exceptionally good, a career is probably not an option. I think a lot of parents sort of live through their kids that way. And so that's a lot. But what, what are your takes looking yeah. back to your sort of a 13, 14-year-old you? I was just, as you were saying that, um, you know, I was just thinking you do you do see some kids who are, you know, very single-focused and um, really pushing to be the best in their sport and, you know, whether it's driven by themselves or coaches or parents or whatever, um, yeah, you do, you do sort of see that a lot. But I don't necessarily know whether that's the reason why some kids don't make it or mm. it's like you said, there are actually just so few who are going to. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, and I think, you know, I think I um, – you don't, you don't always spot the one that's going to make it, but I think I've got a pretty good idea now when you see young kids or teenage kids coming through and they're all sort of working as hard as one another and, and you know, being pushed by all these different influences as well as themselves. And, um, yeah, I think you can sort of spot, you know, that one That one has looks like they've got what it takes and that one just doesn't. And, um, you know, I certainly um, was really serious about sport from a really young age yeah. and, and it didn't affect me in a negative way in, in that I burnt out or whatever. And I sort of think, um, you know, potentially I'll have to ask my parents and, and coaches from a young age, but maybe they could see that I was one of those kids yeah. who just had that extra something that is going to make it all the way. Um, so I'm really fortunate that I was guided just enough to get that maximum potential out of myself. Um, but I think, yeah, I think you really have to have that drive within you. Um, I think unless you have that, there's no amount of, you know, coaching or, or parental guidance or anything else that's going to get you across the line. I think um, you have to sort of discover that within yourself and um, and have that drive. And I know this is an impossible question because if you could answer it, you'll be a billionaire, right? <laughs> That secret source of that, you know, teenage kid that is going to make, I mean, because there's genetics and there's genetics, right? There's that, is that, but does that, is that more a mindset in the way they carry themselves and how they deal with pressure that differentiates them? Or, or what do you think is that the, the biggest influence of, of something that'll, you know, someone will break through? Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I guess if I just use my own family, just my brothers, and it's yeah. as an example, um, yeah, like I've always sort of thought, um, you know, especially in our younger years, our early teens to mid-teens, I think they both had um, way more natural ability and talent than myself. But it might have been, you know, probably came down to not just the willingness to to push yourself because that talent will only take you so far and it probably is to that mid-teen, you know, depending on what sport you're in, maybe even runs out a bit less <laughs> earlier than that. Um, so that it does kind of cross over where, you know, you then have to go, okay, this is what it's going to take to continue at this level or to push past this next little barrier. Um, but I think also the pressure is a huge one. Yeah. And I don't know if that is something that people um, have naturally. Um, I, I think for myself it's something that you learn to deal with mm. um, and some people probably just, you know, want to continue and, and, and have that lesson yeah. and, and grow and learn from it and other people you know, are either scared or shy away from it um, because obviously there's that element that you, you potentially could fail and what does that mean and what does that do to you? And, and so some people I think um, hold back or sell themselves short because yeah. they don't want to experience what that failure might look like and might feel like. 
Um, and that's where all, obviously all of your lessons are, you know, in those failures. That's a whole nother podcast, whole right? Fear. I mean, God, I mean, yeah. the amount of stuff people don't, don't do. do. I mean, and myself looking in the mirror here. Absolutely. Like the fear of judgment, the fear of, you know, oh. Yeah. I mean, my, my, when we spoke about it off camera, like the, the coaching business, the only reason it's not as big as I wanted to is because I'm scared of being judged. Yeah. Like, like flat out. Like there's no other, there's no other way. It's just me not putting myself mm-hmm. out there. And that's that fear. But yeah. I'm, on the other side of that is helping huge amounts of people. So I, I, when I say I... It's, it's a massive area. Yeah. And if I look back on um, some of the things I potentially didn't achieve in my sporting career, um, it's because I still had that fear, mm. um, you know, of, of failure. And it's, there's some really big events where um, it's, it's sort of much easier to come second or third. And that's a silly thing to yeah. say, but um, to put yourself in a position in a race where... Yep, you could win, but you also may may not. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, you can see that window in a race, you can see that opportunity, but you think, oh, I could, you know, I could just sit here and I could come second or third and that's pretty good too. Um, <laughs> Still on the podium, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's a really good thing or I could take that chance and and, um, and win or not win. But, yeah, the, the judgment and the fear of failing I think is a massive one that people either um, just take on and overcome yeah. or it, it defeats them. So here's another question going back to that that phase. I mean, we, we live in a different time now. Like mindfulness is key, breathing. I mean, my kids flipping meditated at school, which I think is awesome. Um, what was much focus in your early career put on the mindset? Because I know for me there was none of that sort of, you know, the power of the mind, positivity and visualization. There was none of that. Mm. And breathing and staying calm. Did you have any mentors at the early age that kind of guided you in that way? Yeah, I did. Um, so one of my very first running coaches, um, Glenn Wilson was his name. Um, he's passed away now, fortunately, a couple of years ago. And I probably started running with him, you know, seven, eight years old. Yeah. Um, you know, and he was an elderly um, coach even then, um, but, you know, had a huge amount of knowledge and experience. And um, I loved training with Mr. Wilson, we called him, because half our session we'd spend lying down visualising. Yeah, wow. I was like, wow. this is great because feet's running. Like, um, <laughs> But I didn't understand how um, powerful those tools were that he was teaching me like, as a seven-year-old. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and I continued running with him probably until my mid-teens. And, um, yeah, I can remember he would, you know, get us to visualise someone that we wanted to look like running and, and that would be us and, um, before events, you know, we had raced our entire race in our heads. and That's so cool, yeah. man. That's amazing. So I think I was really blessed to have learnt that skill and I obviously carried that on and used that throughout my whole career in the surf. Um, you know, before any event, I had already raced that race in my head, yeah. you know, quite a few times. And so that was definitely a tool that I used a lot, the mindfulness, the visualisation, yeah. that, um, that positive talk yeah, um that, yeah. that started really early on for me wow that's i mean that's such a blessing it, yeah it really um, is and i think you know there are those um pivotal people you meet in your yeah. life and those those coaches or parents or whatever it is um that can really just give you those skills um that you don't understand yeah. are so important at the time um i just made so a, a flashback to a podcast that did with um mark for the big wave surfer and he also bumped into someone when he was he was picking up boards on the Gold Coast and he went to some guy's house. Mm-hmm. And this guy had all these sticky notes, like, you know, all these p- positive affirmations on the light switches. And he's like, what's this stuff? You know, also stumbled yeah. across someone in his life and suddenly went, oh, this is like, this is, you know, this is manifestations. Yeah. And they go, 
Is that her? I know, and I had the same. I had um, yeah stickers and all sorts of things all through my room, and yeah. didn't really think any anything of it. And it was you know the family home that I grew up in in, in Alex and. Um, a few years ago when mum and dad sold that house in Downsize, they actually sold it to a family in the surf club and one of the guys who I know ended up, you know, that my room became his room and he's like, all these stickers, like he's like, got an insight into your... It's your mindset. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. And I'm assuming with the modern day athlete, that's all common, all right? That's just part of what they do? I think some embrace it more than others. I yeah. think, um, yeah, I think it's still something to be taught, you know, the power of your mind. Um I think some people still think it's, you know, it's all about the physical aspect of the training. Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I think it I think it still is a bit underdeveloped, um, wow. that side of um, coaching and training for uh, sure. Yeah, I, I, I spend so much time. I'm actually doing a course on subconscious reprogramming at the moment. I just think it's everything. Yeah. Like everything. Like all your, and you used the word identity earlier, like your identity was an athlete. Yeah. If you have that identity of being someone, you'll be that someone unless you reprogram yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. If you have that identity of coming second, you'll come second. You will. <laughs> yeah. If you have the identity, I win, like, then you'll win. Yeah. Like, you know, but trying to explain that to, to, to people or, you know, to young athletes or even to, you know, people of any age, I think it's something you can always learn. And um, <laughs> You can take the horse to water and yeah. then you leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> I actually said that to my 15-year-old. I said, like, when you're ready, I'm here. Yeah, yeah, when you're ready, anything you want to know, I can tell you what I've what I've learned yeah. and how I've evolved. And but when you're ready, yeah, I just eye roll and walks away. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, one day, one day, one day. Um. So looking back to your teenage back, we, we, we're still in your teenage years. Obviously, when was your first big win? I mean, because everyone has that significant win when you're like, should I actually am really good? Mm. Was there one event or one event, you know, sort of one carnival where where it all happened? It was probably um, around that time of leaving school. So, you know, I'd had, I'd had lots so of... So that's 17, 18 yeah, in Australia. I finished, yeah, I finished high school when I was 16. I was really young um, through school. Yeah. Um, and so I think, I can't remember if I was year 11 or year 12, but, um, yeah, in, in one of my high school years was when I first qualified for the national, you know, the, the professional series at the time, the Kellogg's yeah. um, Ironman series. So I started competing in that in high school, but I was still um, really pursuing my career in athletics as well. So, um, and were you still eight hundred and fifteen hundred? Mm, okay, yeah. yeah. And so after <laughs> why? <you> no, know, <laughs> they did kind of complement each other in that you know an Ironman event. You yeah. know, it's probably fifteen. 20 minutes at the most if the surf's big, whereas, you know, a 1,500-metre run is kind of under five minutes. But, um, yeah, it's still sort of within that realm of um, of that distance that was sort of my um, my best um, race, I suppose, yeah. set up. So, yeah, in my um, first year out of school, I was, yeah, competing um, professionally, I, I guess, as yeah. a sense in, in the Kellogg series. And I also made an Australian team um, in athletics and, um, I was, yeah, I remember talking to my dad and I was like, oh, you know, what do I do? And mum and dad had, you know, completely funded obviously all of our sporting <laughs> endeavours as any parent does. Yeah. But, you know, it got to that stage where um, this particular trip for athletics was was a self-funded national team. We were going to go running the States and it was in the year 2000. We were actually going to run at the American Olympic trials oh, wow. um, as an event to, um, to contest. And dad's like, look, you know, Made, you, you're racing professionally, so you've got some money there if you want to go and do this. And so I never really wanted to say no to something that yeah. I had the opportunity to do. So I went and I competed um, 
at this event. Um, so where in the States was it? It was all in um, California. So, okay, cool. yeah. Um, in LA. Yeah, in yeah. LA. Um, and so we had we did about four meets in this tour, but this one one big one where all of the really big um, American track stars yeah. were running. Um, that must have been cool. It was really cool. Um, yeah, it was, you know, Marion Jones and Maurice Green and all those guys in that time. And, wow. Um, yeah, so we watched, we watched them sort of trial for their Olympic team and then we got a chance to race as well. And um, I, I came fifth in the 1500 metre over there and that was, um, it was sort of a really big um sort of breakthrough yeah. race for myself and coming back from that event um the coaches that took us away they gave out an award at the end of that tour you know to someone who was most likely to make the next olympic team and they yeah. gave that to me oh wow um but interestingly that was the last ever athletics race i ever did um so that was Crazy. yeah so what, what what was the flip when you got home yeah, which made was, you go surf lifesaver i think because i i had been um i'd been away in a couple of life-saving teams as well and um you know I had a great experience you know going away in this team and and this event and everything went as perfectly as it could have for me and you know that my projection in that sport was um still massive I hadn't really yeah. ever trained properly for running you know I was getting to this level and I was still swimming five times a week and doing the board and the ski and I probably doing two two run sessions to get to that level, um, it was just, and so the coaches knew that, but they yeah. sort of said, you know, if you switch over now, like, um, yeah, because Sydney Olympics were two thousand, right? So that's right. Yeah. So I wasn't, so yeah, yeah, I was, I was going to just miss the mark on yeah. that, um, but potentially, yeah, um, hit the next one, and so yeah, I came back and I just um, knew that I really, yeah, if it was going to be athletics, I had to really pick. Yep. now and and same with surf and um yeah and I picked surf and I I think um it's I don't I don't don't really know rationally exactly what it was but yep. um in a weird way I think it was because surf was somewhat more challenging for me running ever since I was a really young kid it was just my most natural ability um I was always so much better than anyone else I knew in yep. my age at running um, do, you still, do you still have the Martin Creek record? Probably. <laughs> yeah. I'll Google that. <laughs> yeah, maybe even the Malula <laughs> records. Um, I think I've got like a under six high jump record somewhere because I was probably this tall as a six-year-old. Um, but, yeah, I think I was really driven because, I, you know, I hadn't um, mastered the sport of surf yet. I still had so much yeah. more, um, I think, room to grow and to learn and um yeah, and it was a real challenge and I knew I was going to have to really give everything to potentially become the best at that. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, I've got an affiliation with the ocean and that might have been something that was calling me yeah. to that sport too. You know, you can turn up to the beach and you get a completely different feeling than when you turn up to the track. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so for those non-Australian surf, so what, what, what does your event look like in the Surf Life 7? Well, I sort of knew by that age um, that if I was wanting to make a career yeah. in that sport, you really had to do the Iron Man, Iron Woman event, which is the board, ski, run, um, swim. Okay, so, so slow down. So what is the board, just to explain to um, people who don't know what you're talking about? So the order of the event yeah. changes um, every competition. They draw the order, so you never really know what discipline you're going to have first. Um, but say, yeah, say if it starts with a swim, you know, beach start, you're out past the break, um, you know. And more or less how far is that? 
A uh, typical swim would be about 400 metres. Yeah. yeah, it obviously depends on the size of the surf as yeah. to how far so you, out. Oh, so you've just got to get through the back. Get, okay, is that yeah. the, So that. the course is set behind the break. Um, so some some courses are a lot further than others. Yeah, I've watched some amazing Ironman and women's at Coolum before when it's yeah. big swell. It's like, oh, man. Yes. It's, 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 it's entertaining. Yeah, no I, have a, I have a really distinct memory of racing at Coolum. Trev had retired. I think he was doing commentary at that stage yeah. and I was warming up next to him um, on my board, I think, and he was on his ski and um, we, we kind of went up to this one massive set and I rolled and I don't know what he did, but he popped up and his ski was in two. <laughs> and I, like, I was scared that day, I remember. Um, yeah, but, yeah, so 400-metre swim, yep. um, probably 600-metre board, 800-metre ski, and then there's a run in between each leg as your transition. Um, so that's sort of, yeah, typical um, length. And how many times do you, you – don't you go through three times or it, is it twice? It just depends. So traditionally it's just yep. the once. Okay. Um, but different formats. Sometimes we'll have more of an endurance. Sometimes it'll be an M-shaped course. So you'll sort of do two, two boys. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the format can change. Um, yeah. Sort of within our professional series, there's a bit of um, flexibility there to make it a bit more spectator, bit, um, you know, friendly or, or whatever. But, um, yeah, that's the general scope of the event that I trained for because I sort of knew that was like our ribbon event. So yeah. if you wanted to, um, yeah, really carve out a career, that was the one you had to probably be the best at. And going um, your first endorsement, obviously it's a big deal once you become sponsored, I guess, a sponsored professional athlete. Mm. Do you remember what that was and how and how easy or difficult was it in the early days to find to find sponsorship as a professional athlete? Yeah. Like I think I raced in a time when our sport was its biggest. Yep. So I was really fortunate that there was quite a lot of sponsorship um, money around. Obviously, at the time, we didn't realise things were going to change as the world changes and, and different things. But my very first sponsor was actually um, my surfcraft sponsor, so yep. Hayden Surfcraft, which is just a local manufacturing manufacturing it's, company here. Um, sunny, okay. I see Hayden skis everywhere. I didn't yes. realise they were local. Okay. So originally um, started um, Hayden Kenny. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, obviously. Oh, the, the Kenny family yes. from. Oh, okay. And then obviously, you know, sold that business and, um, yeah, but it's still running today. So yeah. um, going back to when I was telling you um, my nipper days when I wasn't that serious and my first dad just got me a second-hand board as my first board on fiberglass because um, I was still pretty timid and not really sure about it. But um, I was lining up for my first ever state titles and um, and dad knew that I could could do it and he sort of said, look, you know, if you, if you want to do this, if if you have a really good race um, here, you know, if you win, I'll buy your brand new board. And like, that was all it took for me. <laughs> so I won. And um, yeah, and I think, I don't know, I think dad sort of helped me get that as my, but from, from that age, from 11, I was sponsored. Um, oh, were you? Oh, wow. By Hayden. And, so you were um, cashed up, man. <laughs> Tuck shop, you as a person. <laughs> Classic. Yeah. And then I think like a lot of product sponsor follows somewhere yep. and Sunnies and all those sort of stuff. But my first big sponsor, um, was Kellogg's and that would have been, I would have maybe been 16, I think, and um, I won my first um, series event and it was actually held here at, at Alex. Oh, brilliant. Um, on, on my home beach and, yeah. Um, yeah, sort of came in one that day. It was, it was pretty unexpected because I was the youngest in the field. Yep. Um, and it was the last event of that particular season and um, and that's when sort of Kellogg signed me as a contracted athlete 
Um, and then I continued on. Did you end up in a cereal box? I did. Did you? Yes. God, I love goals, right? <laughs> I know. That's awesome. I'm going to have to find one because I tell my kids and they don't believe me now. <laughs> yeah, we need to put that in the show notes. Yeah. So please send me the picture. I'm going to have to find it. So when when was, um, and I mean, as I said, I've only been here seven years, but from what I understand, Surf Life Saving was like rock star stuff. You know, yeah. went through that era and was Nutrigrain the guys and Kellogg's the female athletes or how did it all work or, or did that kind of move move between brands? No, so, um, so yeah, so Kellogg's Nutrigrain is sort of, that was the one um, one series that was running and okay. then there was the Uncle Toby series, which oh, was the, yeah, yeah. the second series. So, um, and I think that's what made it so big because there was sort of these rival cereal companies that were, um, you know, competing against each other to sign the best athletes to their um, series. Yeah. So there was, you know, things like big sign-on fees and, and big prize money because Sweet. they wanted to attract yep. the best athletes to to their particular um, series. And the sport was so big that it could sustain yep. two of these professional series, wow. both, you know, sort of primetime live TV yeah. coverage. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, so for myself, um, I gravitated more to the to the Kellogg's series um, because it was sort of a bit more based around the traditional um, format yeah. and, and that traditional length of sort of that 15 to 20 minute type format. Whereas the Uncle Toby's was a bit more of an endurance yeah. one at the time. You know, they would do these really killer three to four hour events and, and that suited some athletes perfectly, but um, you only suffer for 20 that's minutes. That's right. <laughs> you see, like if I'm going to suffer, I'm just going to pick this. So I think that's really, you know, why yeah. I actually gravitated to that one and that was, um, yeah, and so I was really fortunate from that first season as a 16-year-old to get signed by Kellogg's. I stayed with them for that next 10, 11 years. Wow. Um, that's also until you retired. That's you were right. Saying. Yeah. And, I mean, did you as the, I'm assuming, you know, as, as you started getting national coverage and all the PR work that had to come with it, um, as a shy person, how did you transition to doing the media and the press releases mm-hmm. and the interviews? And was that just something you learnt or, or, or how did that go? Yeah, and it was just a, a process of, I think, just practice. Yeah. And, um, you know, and we were we were really fortunate because um, there was a lot of money in the sport um, and there was that competition with, you know, which series is going to be yeah. better. Kellogg's actually really did invest in us as athletes. And so we got put through, you know, really proper extensive media training, oh, wow. speaking okay. courses, um, all of that type of thing. And um, so I think that as well as a combination of because I was aware of it myself through high school, I made myself, you know, go on the debating team and things like that oh, that classic. terrified me. Um, you know, I went for roles like school captain and and you know, things that I just knew were so far out of my comfort zone, but I just thought there's no other way to learn it um, than by doing it. Yeah, and yeah. it was similar for me, you know, growing up, I had a real fear of surfing, like of the waves. And I asked so many coaches and fellow competitors, I'm like, oh, what's the trick here? Like, what do you do just to not be scared yeah. of that? And they're like, there's no trick. You just have to go in it and keep. Repetition. And, yeah. Mm. You have to get smashed by those waves and then eventually that fear goes away. And so I knew that was going to be the same for me with speaking. And um, so I just said yes to everything I could. Mm. Um, and I think just over those years of, um, yeah, kind of more more being forced into it. And and now because I, you know, as Cedric, I saw on your, on your Insta that you emceed a very high-profile event, as for, for, the, for the fellow introverts out there, 
Is is that fear gone now, or or is it still a little? I mean, can yeah. can you overcome it? I guess. I think it's still a matter of overcoming it. I yeah. think, um, yeah, and I, you know, I haven't had a lot of conversations with you know some of the really well established speakers who who do that for a living to know whether they still get that kind of you know butterfly feeling or, um, and I kind of actually enjoy that feeling now because it, you know I, I compare it to that feeling you used to get before a race, and I used yeah. to quite quite like that, and it's sort of that rush that you get and then that feeling of satisfaction once you've done a really good job similar to once you've done a really good race and it's that that same kind of feeling um yeah but I think it's now just a matter of managing um managing those those feelings when you have to get up and and host an event or present to a really important room of people um and you know just like sport I prepare for it though like I make sure I'm really well prepared for that night um but yeah, I definitely do still get those feelings. I think you know it all comes back to that topic of of fear. And I speak to some friends who are just really nervous, you know, speakers who would just shake. And I say to them, "Is that because you're so worried of what those people are going to think of you?" And it is. Yeah. And so when I stand up in front of a room and I have to speak, I can you know honestly say I don't want to sound horrible when I say this, but I don't care what they think of me. Yeah. I know I'm going to do the best job that I can. And it takes away all of those nerves and that fear because, um, yeah, that that judgment. I don't take that on. I don't take. Yeah. So so on that. So I, mean, it's, I always ask introverts because I'm I, I can't. Like, you have to take a microphone out of my hand. <laughs> yeah. Like, right. I, I freaking love it. Right. I can speak. I can speak all day. Um, you know, I love. I speak at a lot of events around the world, and I freaking love it. You know, I can. Right. I don't prepare. I just walk on stage and say, right, let's go. Because wow, that's just my dna but um in terms of the judgment and the fear thing that i alluded to earlier on um it's part of this course i'm doing the best the thing that hit home for me for the judgment thing which was amazing the guy put up a video of elvis and it was old fat elvis mm-hmm. and elvis is sitting behind a piano you can hardly got his breath and he's and he said well what do you think about this video and some people wrote oh this is inspirational this is this other people wrote this i wrote Ah, oh, you know, I struggled. I struggled to watch this because I just, you know, it's, he's past his prime, and everyone had an opinion. Mm. And anyway, so we're doing a call, and the guy said, "Well, why do you think I put up that thing about this?" And I said, "No one knew." He said, "Well, you're judged him, right?" And you went like, "Oh shit!" And he's like, "Well, if you're going to judge Elvis, the reality is everyone's going to judge you. So what are you? What's stopping you? Mm. You are going to be judged. Yeah. I mean, no matter what, whether you're good or you're bad." And it was just such a it was just such a, I don't know, this weird relief for me that left it off my shoulders that whatever you do, people are going to judge you. Yeah. So if I use, you can't be scared because I judged Elvis. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, Elvis. Really <laughs> it was an interesting way to look at it. Yeah. Oh, anyway, so going back to your, and this is something I want to chat about. I don't know if it's because, as I said, I was away with six 15 year old girls for the weekend, which I'm still slightly traumatized by. But when you, when you won, it was the Kudengado junior you won five in a row mm-hmm. did you have any issues with friends with peers you know in the surf life-saving club because things get tricky when you're on the pedestal right as mm-hmm. you said it's probably easier to come second did you did you have to deal with a lot of that jealousy in the early days yeah probably not that that young but probably again around that um late teens early 20s even like yeah. i probably thought you know i might have experienced it a bit younger but or maybe I just was a bit oblivious yeah. to it, and I you're too busy training. Yeah, <laughs> maybe I didn't. I, maybe I didn't hear the stuff that was being said. Yeah. But yeah, definitely hit me um, sort of in those later teens, early twenties. Um, 
and it, and it wasn't really influenced so much from my other competitors. I think um, I was pretty fortunate. A lot of them, you know, and myself included, we had a pretty healthy respect for each other because yeah. we knew what we were doing. We knew what we were aspiring to do. But it was more those outside influences, parents, other coaches who um, unfortunately would sometimes foster a really, you know, unhealthy rivalry or um, or feel that they needed to um, instigate some sort of rumours. I had lots of things um, that I would hear said about me and I was like, oh, that's not really happening. Mm. But, um, yeah, and... Yeah. So how did you manage it? I mean, I mean, I know it's hindsight's so much easier, right? But at the time, I mean, it must have affected you, I'm assuming. It, again, it probably did, and I probably don't really know the magnitude to the extent that it, that it actually yeah. did, but maybe because I am, you know, introverted and I'm a hugely private person, yeah. um, I just, I was never, you know, one to kind of um, talk about my achievements or what I was doing anyway, so I just kind of went about my business the way I kind of always had, and, um, you know, my dad used to guide me on that because that's his style, you know, let your actions do the talking, you know, people can say, and, you know, that this relates to any kind of part of your life, you know, business, work, relationships or whatever, people can say whatever they really like. But at the end of the day, you know, who you are and your actions as a competitor, as a person, that's is what's going to shine through. You can't really explain to people the person that you are or um, your achievements. Um, yeah. You've either got that or you haven't. And, and that stuff does just kind of rise to the top. And so, that was the advice that my parents would give me. Um, Sound advice, man. Yeah, mm. and at the time there was, you know, there were um, some, you know, some pretty significant things that were said and done to me as a competitor, um, you know, even pretty full-on kind of sabotage from other coaches and, and parents and, um, yeah, I'm really glad that my parents didn't encourage me to retaliate in a different yeah. way because that would have changed, you know, who I actually am as a person and, um, but, you know, their advice was just, would you know, just show them on, um, you know, on the playing field or whatever your um, event is, um, you know, who you are and what you stand for. And that was just kind of how I dealt with it. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I always tell my my teenage daughter is getting a lot of, uh, of airtime on this podcast, but I'm like, just don't give it energy. That's exactly right. You know, and, and if she has a she has a fallout with someone at school, I'm like, do you understand that this girl's owning you? She goes, what do you mean? I'm like. She's consuming you. Yeah. You're spending a dinner talking about it. She owns you. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, no, she doesn't. And I'm like, if you give it energy, that's where it's going to go. Yeah. Right, so. And you see some athletes, you know, because the media love when they get a sniff that there's something <sighs> happening. Oh, no. And so, <laughs> so many times I'd be doing an interview and they'd be, they'd be really hunting for an angle or Poking that the they yeah. would. Yeah. And you do sort of see a lot of athletes get caught up in that and they get distracted from their actual performance and their event and yeah. talking about the really positive stuff and get swept up in this controversy that may or may not even really exist, but um, people like to create it. Flipping to a positive note, <laughs> your first national title of 19. Can you talk through that, where that happened? Yeah. Um, just the whole build-up and, 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 and winning it at a, such a young age. Yeah. So um, in that particular block of my career, um, Surf Life Saving Australia um, had – um, I guess, organised that our national titles would be held at Karawa for 10 years. Oh, wow. So Where is Karawa? On the Gold Coast. Okay. So, um, yeah, so that had some advantages and disadvantages to my career because it's probably one of the, in my opinion, one of the most unpredictable beaches mm. in terms of the surf conditions. So 
um, you can sometimes be the best in Australia at that time and not win your national title because it's held on that particular beach. But that's also why we love our sport because yeah, it because is you, it has yeah, that no, element. Yeah. It has that element um, of of the ocean. Yeah, so I um, had it was my last year as an under nineteen competitor, and I had just previously raced in my own age group, mm-hmm. and I had I had won the under nineteen the two previous years, and that particular year I ended up coming second. Um, I I can't actually really remember that race, but I I remember thinking it was either. Um, you know, I was hit by a wave going out. I was in the wrong spot for the wave coming in. I was expected to win and I just um, ended up coming second. And that was quite significant because that particular year I was aiming to do what um, Grant Kenny had done and he's been the only person in our sport to do it and that was to win the junior and the senior. senior, So that was my opportunity to do that and um, and I I just missed. And um, so I was um, sort of had to go straight to the um, start line for the Opens and, yeah, my dad was my handler, so he would hold my board and ski in transition for those events. And I like I remember just thinking, well, I can't wait for this last race to be over because that particular event was the end of our season. We yeah. get some top down time and our national titles is a five-day event. And oh, wow. I would probably have 10 races a day for those five days. And this was the last one and yeah. I was just saying to dad, yeah, I just can't wait for this one to be done now. And, um, yeah, and dad, you know, his advice always was, you know, this is you, you've got an opportunity here. You've actually made the final. Um, you never know when you might have this chance again. You, yeah. you, next year is not guaranteed to anyone, even and, though. And how many women in the final? Um, fifteen. Fifteen. Okay. Yeah. So pretty small field. Yeah. Um, pretty small field. Fifteen or sixteen. I can't remember that year. Um, and so yeah, Dad sort of said like, you know, you've you've made it here. Don't look at it like oh, you've just got to get through this race. You've got as much chance of winning this as anyone. And I don't know if I 100% believed it at that time because there were some massive names in that in that final. Um, but just those words from Dad were enough to kind of switch my mindset to, yeah, okay, um, I don't want to just give yeah. this race away. Um, you know, even though I hadn't won my under-19, um, in some ways I took a lot of pressure off for that race. I'm sure it did, yeah, yeah in um, a bizarre way. Yeah. yeah, in a bizarre way. Yeah. And I was still a junior, so I wasn't expected um, necessarily to win and the surf was really big that day, which um, I quite I quite enjoyed. Um, yeah, so the ski leg was first, and that was one of my strengths, um, and managed to get out well and, and picked a really um, strategic way to come in. A couple yeah. of girls lost their skis, and I sort of held my ski all the way to the beach um, and had opened up a really big lead um, into the board leg, which I held, and then the swim was last. And it would have been... Oh, I reckon at least a 15-minute swim, which was sometimes the length of our entire race. Yeah. The surf was so big that yeah. day that it was a it was a really big swim. Um, and I, there were some big names behind me and I was half expecting them to swim past, but um, I got out to the cans and I was like, oh, I'm still in front here, so that's it. I'm just going to give it everything. Yeah. Um, when I got to the beach, I wasn't really sure where I was because the surf was so massive. I thought someone could have come past yeah. and I wouldn't have noticed, but, yeah, Dad's like, you've you won. <laughs> um, yeah, and it was just, yeah, it was really like an unbelievable yeah. feeling. Um, and and that was, yeah, definitely really pivotal um, time in my career. Um, it was probably my first big open win. Yeah. Um, and our national title is considered probably the most prestigious um, title to win in our sport um, in that particular event and especially on that. On that, on that beach. With that surf as yeah. well. Right? Kind of, yeah. And, I mean, looking back to when you were, you know, a kid and all the notes in your book, was, was winning a national title one of the ultimate goals that you had set for yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I don't think I had, like, 
a time in mind. I probably thought I'd be a bit older yeah. um, when I got there. But, um, yeah, I, I certainly had set that as one of my as one of my goals. And coming back to Alex, your, your home surf club as a national champion, mm. um, from what I picked up speaking to Trev, the, the, the men kind of are just dominated on the Gold Coast. Um, from a woman's perspective, are the national champions all over the place? Was it the first time Alex had had a national champion in a couple of years? How were you received when you came home? Yeah, like uh, it was the first time that um, Alex had, um, I'm just trying to think, we had two other girls that I could look up to, um, Kirsty and Denby, Kirsty Holmes. Um, She had won, I'm trying to think what year that was, might have been like late 90s, 96, 97. Um, And so... And we had Steve Pullen and he had won 99, I think, so a couple of years before me. So our club was a, was a really strong club in that era. Yeah. Um, so I certainly wasn't um, the first um, person to, to have won a national title. But, um, yeah, as, as I expected, the club um, have always been a huge supporter and yeah. I've never um, been in any other surf club um, my whole life. So, um, But it wasn't, I don't know, like it didn't. Some people sort of said, oh, this is going to change your life, you know, this this particular event. And, yeah. it, and it didn't in a lot of ways um, because, yeah, I didn't probably let it change me. Yeah. Um, I didn't really think of myself any different after having won that title. But, um, yeah, the Surf Club, they definitely really got behind me and they knew that I had set some bigger goals of, of world, world championships. Titles, yeah, yeah. So they then really supported me to get to those events um, to um, pursue those next level goals that I had for myself. So from a, I'm assuming from an endorsement exposure, the cereal box moment, did that all come after the nationals? I mean, was that, would that open the door in terms of putting you on the map, so to speak, in terms of Australia? Yeah, absolutely. I think once you've got that title behind you, a lot of people want to use your name with the tagline, you know, Australian Iron Woman champion. Brilliant. Um, Yeah. So it did, it definitely did open up a lot of those doors, um, I think, you know, we didn't have social media in um, those days. Yeah. So potentially life would be would have been a lot different, yeah. um, you know, had we had that. It was more the traditional um, forms of endorsements and, and marketing and media. Because that's, I mean, the Sunshine Coast where we live is a pretty sleepy place. So mm. I'm assuming going back then it was even sleepier. Uh, it must, you know, just coming back home, it just would have been, well, just keep training, right? Yeah. So it's not that, you know. People, you know, hunting you in DMs on Instagram. I mean, exactly. who, would, who would do that, right? Exactly. <laughs> I was really protected by all that stuff. Yeah. So it was kind of a nice thing because um, that was an aspect of the sport I didn't really enjoy. I didn't like being the center of attention. Yeah. I didn't like having a lot of that media spotlight on myself. So it suited me quite fine, um, you know, not to have yep. um, those sort of live videos to social media <laughs> that we would have now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I almost mentioned my teenager again. She gives me so much grief about social media. World, like, yeah. I like, oh, that freaks me out. I know, me too. But anyway, so world titles, you mentioned that you wanted to compete in that. So what, what does a world title look like? Where is it how and, and how did your preparation differ going from a national champion to, you know, looking at the world stage? Um, yeah, so for myself, that was always um, my ultimate goal because um, I wanted to make the Australian team yeah. for our sport. For me, I saw that as the pinnacle if you can represent your country in your chosen sport, that that's really the ultimate goal. So I wanted to aspire to make that Australian team to then compete at the world championships 
So for our sport, the World Championships is held every two years. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, literally anywhere around the world, there's 54 countries, I think, who compete in surf lifesaving. Um, so it's a lot bigger than people probably realise. It's yeah. obviously a, a big national sport here, but um, it's a really big sport in, in a lot of other countries too. So it's a, it's a, a big event, um, the World Championships. And my preparation for those was quite different. Yeah. Um, to make Same distance? I mean, or is it? Yeah, still that traditional format. Traditional, okay. Still that traditional format. Um, however, when um, to be picked in an Australian team, there's um, a team of six men and six women. Um, and as one of those six women, there's 20 events that you have to contest. So you have to be a really versatile yeah. athlete. And um, 10 of those events are contested in the pool. So a lot of the European countries um, do oh, pool wow. life-saving. That's crazy. Um, so, so give me an example of a pool event. So, oh, they're, and they're, in my opinion, they're more brutal than an Ironman event. Yeah. Um, so, so one of the most torturous ones, I think, it's, um, it's called the 100 medley where you, um, you know, just do the first lap as a proper freestyle sprint, yeah. tumble turn, hold your breath, underwater 20 metres and you pick up this mannequin off the bottom and it can be a three-metre yeah. bottom of the pool. It's around 60 kilos full of water. You've got to drag up the top and sprint with it freestyle to the end of the pool. And, and and people are, you know, ridiculously fast at those events. And yeah. it's that, that and passing out underwater, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, you feel like you're about to. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's um, a whole lot of different okay. um, events that, um, are contested at a, at a really high level, these pool rescue events. So there's 10 events in the pool and then 10 events in the ocean. Um, so you've got to be a very, very strong yeah. swimmer, um, but also be able to contest all of these ocean events. And is Australia like a powerhouse in the world champions? Traditionally, are they like the... the, the Traditionally, I mean, we are, yeah. and we have we have been the world champions for a long time. Yeah. New Zealand rival us really closely. Okay, that's interesting. Um, there's a bit more of an overlap. Um, in New Zealand with their Olympic pool swimmers who cross over to do um, the pool rescue stunt, yeah. whereas in Australia, if you're a pool swimmer, you're more of a pool swimmer, and if you're a surf swimmer, yeah. there's not really much of a crossover. So um, the New Zealanders um, are really strong in how they put that program together in the pool. Um, and then, yeah, some of the other countries traditionally who are quite good in the surf, South Africa, yeah. um, Great Britain, um, even you know, Japan is – Great Britain must be so cold. I know. I was like, oh. Yeah, there's another I level of. I lived in London for a few years and I'm like, nah. No, yeah, I know. I don't know how they do it. So your your preparation for the Worlds, where was your first Worlds? I mean, where was that held and was that a lot more swim training focused because of the pool? Did you have to kind of adapt your training? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I knew that to make this team, I had to become good at these pool rescue events. Yeah. So I just took that on and I wanted to master them and I picked a couple of events that I thought I could become really good at yep. and um yeah and i ended up my best result um in my sort of favorite pool event was third at, at the worlds um but my first ever world um titles was actually here in manly okay. um beach so and um sydney manly sydney, sydney manly yeah, yeah. yeah and it was a pretty flat day for manly so yep. um and traditionally different to where our national titles is held at a surf beach um, the International Lifesaving Federation will often pick beaches that are a little bit calmer for the World Championships because, you know, not every country has the beaches that we have and are exposed to the conditions that, that we're exposed to. So, um, you know, we've had races in the Mediterranean and yeah, different. So it's flat. So flat, it's flat, usually yeah. flat and 
And I sort of prefer that because if you go into a world championships and you're the best, you're more than likely going to win because yep. their surf element is much more reduced um, than having it at a big open um, beach like we're sometimes used to training on. Um, so, yeah, my first ever world championships in Sydney, I came third in the Ironman there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and looking back, were you were – you- Pleased with that? Were you disappointed? Uh, Were you? Okay, no. pretty devastating <laughs> because I, I led literally to the last wave and I was oh, um, almost to the sand and a wave came through and brought the competitors um, who were coming second and third right up to me. And so they got a bit more of a rest on this wave. And as yeah. I got to the shore, they caught me and we all stood up and it was a sprint and I just had nothing left. So I was... Uh, third was amazing. I wasn't expected to come anywhere near that, but yeah. I was you so, to, close yeah, yeah. so close to winning. So close. So who actually won it? So Carla Gilbert won that year, okay. and she was fellow Australian. Yes, so okay. she is, you know, was and, and is one of the biggest names in our sport. Um, so you know, it wasn't an upset for her to win yeah. um, by any means. Um, but yeah, it definitely fueled me to then to then go on. So um, two years later, where was it? So two years later, <laughs> it was um, in, at Daytona Beach in America, oh, wow. Florida. That's also pretty flat there. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, Been there. Yeah, so that was that was a really interesting event. Um, and I actually won the board. So we, I competed in the individual events yep. as well as the iron. So I won the board and the ski there. Um, but I can't remember. I, I wasn't actually on the podium for the iron Um yeah, I can't really quite remember um, where I finished at that particular Worlds, and it, and it was it was disappointing, and it also wasn't um, because yeah, it was just you know the surf and the conditions, and yeah. that, and that was the best I had on that day, um, and sort of my one of my ultimate goals, which was equal to winning a World Ironman, was actually to win a World Board. That was yeah. always my favourite discipline from a really young kid. Um, from when dad, you know, promised that to get me this new board when I was 11, that I wanted to be the, the world board champion. So winning that at that event yeah. was enough for me. So that was, that was a huge um, goal achieved. And did you, did, from a logistics, did you ship all your skis and boards mm, across? Yes. That must have been, I mean. Yeah, so containers, yeah, always to um, those different events around the world. It was always just a hope that they get there yeah, safely. in one piece. Yeah. In one piece. Yeah. Um, yes, I, sometimes I would put two boards in, you know, just in case. Yeah. Um, yeah, but they were definitely always our craft that we shipped because they're pretty personally made to yeah. sort of suit you. Um, and did Hayden make the paddle boards as well as the skis for you? Yes. You made both, okay. They did, okay. yeah. So, shout yeah. out. Shameless <laughs> plug. And um, after that, two years later? So two years later, um, this was probably when I was, um, I considered myself to probably be the best um of my ability and that's, yep. that was 2004 and the world championships were in Viaggio in Italy. Okay. Um, never been there. Never. Yeah. No, what's the surf like? Flat. Flat. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, amazing, amazing place. Yeah. And um, that was, you know, going back to your previous question about, um, you know, how you deal with other competitors and coaches. And that was probably one of my worst experiences leading into that particular event because you know I was named in the Australian team and one of my closest rivals at the time wasn't Mm -hmm. and her coach was um very vocal about that um you know and obviously as I said we didn't have the social media stuff but he would do things like write letters to the editor and it was published in all of our local papers, which at the time was what people wow. would read because exactly we didn't right. have and was it a local athlete as well? No, she wasn't from the sunny coast here. Um and so, yeah, there was big headlines um, and she won't mind me saying this because we're, we're really close friends now, yeah. but 
um, the big head, she had, has the same name as me, so it was wrong Christie Pitt with the headlines and it was like, you know, it was it was brutal and I was like, and, you know, you doubt yourself as an athlete because yeah. she is an amazing a competitor and an amazing athlete and you think, oh, you know, should they have picked her? Have they made the mistake? Have the selectors picked the wrong Christie here? Yeah. And, um, and it was, yeah, it was a rivalry that was really played out in the media and, um, and so the pressure for me going into that world championships, not only did I want to do well for myself, but I wanted to do really well for my country because um, I didn't want to be the wrong person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't want those headings to You don't want that label. Yeah, I told you so. <laughs> exactly. So, um, yeah, and so she, um, you can compete just for your club. Yep. Um you know, not, you don't have to be in the Australian team to compete in that particular Ironman event. So she came over and, and raced um, as well. And and you mentioned you got a good relationship. Now, at the time, were you? I mean, it was obviously from what I, you said, coach driven. Yeah. Were you kind of just, you know, hello, had that Absolutely. mutual respect? Absolutely, we really did. Mm. Yeah, we never really had anything personally against each other. It was just this really fierce rivalry as competitors that was, you know, it was probably um, driven by, you know, the, the clubs and the coaches and yeah. um, and the media. They loved having a story about course, it yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, but one thing that I learned about myself um, is, you know, when I am given that little bit of ammunition, um, I'm really hard to beat when I'm angry. <laughs> and so I just channeled it in that, yeah. in that sense and yeah. – um, Rather than let those words kind of um, defeat me or overcome me, I would use them. So, in in a sense, that particular coach did me the biggest favour because he helped me to win my first ever world Ironman title. Because that's a shout out to you. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just, yeah, yeah, I just you know fueled all of that um, energy into my own motivation. To and how did that race go? Was it just you know did yeah, everything just, just go? Perfectly, perfectly I just led start start to finish and it just in those races that just seem easy like mm. um yeah you just really powerful and you can just you know paddle onto that wave and um yeah so and like I said I think you know I was in my best physical um condition yeah. um in my life at that stage so um, yeah, that was my first um, breakthrough win for my first world Ironman title. And can you remember, you know, whether it was in the hotel or the plane back or wherever it was, where you, like the penny dropped when you like should have actually won this thing? Yeah. Is, is there that moment where it was like, oh, should this actually happen? Probably talking to my coach at the time and I was coached um, by Brad Stokes, who's the husband of one of my, um, you know, main, main competitors as well, but she had since retired. And, yeah. Um, leading into that event, um, he was really confident in my ability to win. You know, he sort of said, I had absolutely no doubt in my mind I would have bet my house on it. I was like, <laughs> bet my house <laughs> yeah. on a race like that. But, um, you know, he had that confidence. And because he was so confident, I think that helped me yeah. to believe in myself. And, you know, when I probably would have had a few more questions in my head of, you know, am I quite ready? Am I quite best? And, um, but yes, I think talking to him after that race, um, you know, and he just really affirmed, well, yeah, of course, of course you won. I knew you were going to win. Yeah. Um, and it made me think, oh, yeah, okay, like I, I am that good now. <laughs> um, so I think that was that moment when yeah. I thought, like, I really felt like I deserved that win. Like um, yeah. I think when I'd won my national title as a 19-year-old, I was the best on that day, but I still thought, oh, there's some really amazing girls yeah. who could have just as easily won. Whereas I think that time I sort of thought, no, this, this is actually my time now. I feel like I am the best in the world. That's awesome, man. And and coming with that that sense of like I am the best. Did your 
when you came back from a mindset perspective? Did your training change? Did everything change where you had a different aura around you where you knew what you were doing was going to lead you to success? Was there a different like internal shift once you had that internal realisation? Um, I think, if anything, it just kind of confirmed that what I was doing is on the right path. Yeah. Um, so had I not had those those results, I might have, you know, sort of thought, do I need to shift something? Do I need to do something a bit differently? Yeah. Whereas I sort of knew I was I was in the right squad, I was in the right training environment, I had everything around me, um, you know, in the right place to kind of continue on that path of, yep. of getting the best out of myself. Um, it certainly was getting harder because, you know, since winning that title at 19, once you sort of get to that level of, of the top, you know, as you know, staying there is is much harder than yep. that climb. So, um, yeah, season after season I was sort of finding it harder to find, okay, now where do I find that little bit that of room? Little, for, that, yeah, that 1%. Where yeah, are those yeah, room, yeah. What, what areas do I have room for improvement and what can I change and um, what can I focus on? Um, but yeah, I think I had that in my training squad and in my environment at that time. So backing up a world title, um, huge pressure, huge expectation. Mm. Do you want to talk about obviously where the next world title was? We, we've left Italy <laughs> and, um, nerves, anxiety going into that race, you know, to try back it up. Yeah. So, um, it had actually come back to Australia again, the world championship. So they were down in lawn in Victoria. Okay. Um, and yeah, there were there were a lot of nerves, um, but I was also really excited because I'd had a really good preparation. Um, in saying that, um, going back to my good friend who was still one of my main rivals, um, we the had a, yeah the other Christy, we had um, a Kellogg's race. So our professional race, our professional series, yeah. is different to our national championships and our world championships. They're sort of our standalone events, um, but but each year we're still competing in our um, professional domestic series, which is where um, a lot of our sponsorship and prize money and, and our living was made. Um, not so much on the other events. They yep. were sort of, um, you know, you, you win the title, but you, you don't win a lot of um, prize Doesn't money. put food in the table. Doesn't, no. <laughs> um, so we had, we had a big event leading into that um, World Championships in 2006 and um, that particular year Kellogg's decided, you know, it was was a one-off big finale race. You know, it was fifty thousand prize money, pretty much winner takes all. And um, and I was confident because I was, you know, in, in, mm. again still in the best shape of my life. And um, all the events leading up to that indicated that I, I was pretty confident that I was yeah. in a position to take that out. And that particular day, the surf was not on my side, and um, Christy got a little runner from the outside and went past me and and claimed that. Um, prize and that was a that was a pretty big thing to sort of pick myself back up from and then two yeah. weeks later we had to get our heads around this world championship event and so um yeah you know she was on top of the world and she won this huge event and I and I was second and um again I was in the national team and and she hadn't been selected so there was there was still that yeah. Um, that pressure there. Wrong Christy, right yes, Christy, right Christy. Exactly. But it, it was, a, and you know, we probably pushed each other to get so much more out of yeah. both of ourselves in our careers because we had this rivalry. Um, Joys of hindsight, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. But yeah, I mean, just, just a, I guess, a question which is, as you know, if you look at a sprinter, right? That's like 100 meters flat turf. If you look at your beloved 1500, for surf life saving, I think. The bizarre thing for me, if people don't understand the ocean, like someone can be a hundred meters behind, get a wave and win. Exactly. Like, like, how do you, 
as a competitor, how do you process that? Because yeah. that mother nature is going to do what mother nature wants. You could physically be a hundred meters ahead, but then still lose. Uh, it, it still doesn't make losing suck less. No. But how do you process that? I think um, being involved in this sport, and you know, that's why I really want to expose my kids to it because um, I think it teaches you, like, you can never not be humble because you just never know when that's going to happen to you. Yeah. Um, and even, you know, and even when you're the one, I've had plenty of times where I've been the person behind and I get that lucky break. Get the and magic wave, yeah. And you've got to learn to be a really gracious winner as well because, you know, sometimes you're not the best on the day and you still win. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you are the best on the day and you lose. And um, and so I think it teaches you skills outside of your sport in how to just, um, you know, still be the person you are, whether you've won or whether you've lost. And um, I think you can appreciate um, how your other competitors are feeling because you've been in those positions um, that they've been in before. And, um, yeah, I think it really brings in a human element yeah. um, to the skills that you learn when you have to pick yourself up after after a defeat when you kind of know it's not fair. Yeah. But um, there's so many things in life that aren't fair. And so it's a it's an amazing – I think I've had an amazing head start in, mm. in life because I've learnt those skills through sport where – Things can happen that are out of your control um, and you can, you know, think it's really unfair and um, and you can either go into a really dark place of depression or anger or whatever or you can just shake it off and, you know, mm. know it was out of your control and keep looking forward to the, the next the next race. So your dad sounds like Yoda to me. Um, what, what is his advice? Mm. Um, if you can remember, you know, having that loss yeah. and going into Going that. into the next one. Yeah. Um, you know, it was just two weeks. So there was really nothing you could do training-wise any different. The window mm. was just too short and it was really just sort of how you, pick, stuff, your, yeah. Yeah, how you pick yourself up. Do you remember what your dad said to you? Um, like, and, and when I sort of said, like, unless he's got something necessary to say, mm. um, he, he kind of... Like he, he knew how I was feeling. There wasn't anything he needed to critique in terms of what I did in that race. Yeah. So it wasn't like he could comment on, you know, you, you should have gone this way, you didn't read the surf right. This There was absolutely nothing I did sort of wrong. So in some ways I love that, um, you know, he knew I was processing that on my own in my own head and there yeah. was nothing that, you know, as a parent he could add that was going to make me feel better <laughs> um, about that. So, yeah, it was probably just a hug, a pat on the back and, like let's look forward to the next yeah. one. You know, we'll get them next time. Kind of that was that yeah. attitude. Um, it was yeah. Spend no more time reflecting on that. That's done. Um, you know, you've got this next one, and let's focus on that. And and um, yeah. And as I sort of said before, once I get something that's you know burning inside of me, and I think okay, right, this next one that's got to be my time. Yeah. Um, and that 2006 World Championships. Um, I was just driven by something different that year and, and I won the board, the ski, the iron, the rescue tube. I can't remember. I think there was a fifth gold medal and I don't think that's, you know, ever been done Wow. Um, yeah. maybe by a man or woman since. Um, Classic. And then you won the iron woman as well. Uh, yeah. yeah. And how old were you at that time? Um, a good question. I would have been maybe 23. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I, so after that I sort of um, – I, yeah, that was, you know, it's pretty hard to top. I thought this is going to be hard to top. Yeah. You know? um, there's not much I haven't done now in my sport. Yeah. I had um, ticked all of my goals. I'd won the board ski and iron now um, twice at, at World Championships. Um, and I thought, well, you know, what what's my next goal? What mm. is there left to achieve? Um, yeah. I also graduated 
uni in 2006. So I was and what did you study? I did a um, Bachelor of Business yep. and I majored in marketing and international business. They were sort of my areas that I was really interested in. So I had, yeah, I had graduated uni and I, and I was, I was really um, motivated by, you know, a career outside of sport as well. So yep. I sort of had that in the back of my mind and I, I think it was around that time when I decided I would do one more World Championships and that might be it on my career. Yeah. Um, so the next World Championships in 2008 were going to be in Germany. Um, so I thought, oh, you know, I want to want to go to try and make that team again, um, and and decide that that might be my last yeah. my last event. So it was a nice, I think, way to process it because I had yeah. a long time to to um, I guess get my own head around the fact that this was going to be it, and um, it wasn't like I was going to you know be forced into retirement through bad performances or injury, yeah. um, I thought I want to choose when I want to go out and I still want to be the best when I go out yeah. of my sport. Um, yeah, so that's sort of how that came about. And and do you think, because obviously you were at, at high volume from, what, 11, right? So mm. a lot of, was it just like enough's enough now? Like I've achieved more than it was just it's time for a new chapter. Was that part of the internal dialogue? Yeah, I think I was getting pretty mentally burnt out yeah. um, physically and I was really fortunate and I was also really in tune with my body kind of my whole life. I kept training diaries. I took my pulse every morning. Like if there was something that was slightly out with myself, I I could pick it up and I yeah. could read my body really well. So I never had um, any sort of serious illnesses or injuries, um, I think, through through good management um, of my training and my body. But mentally, yeah, I'd done 10 years sort of on that um, professional domestic yeah. circuit and um, I'd been at the top of my sport for a long time, which – you know, it's a really hard place to be. Um, yeah, so I think I think I was just kind of getting to that headspace where I needed yeah. a break from yeah. it. Um, and did you make that team to go to Germany? I did. Yeah. And in an unexpected surprise, and it was never a goal of mine, I was actually named captain of that Australian oh, team. Oh, brilliant. Um, and so that, that had never been something that I had aspired to be because um, our Australian team is mixed gender, um, and so it's just always kind of a given that you know, the best man in the team yeah. is the captain because, you know, physically men are faster, fitter, stronger and, um, you know, they've always led the team. And um, so to be given that that honour, yeah. Wow. Had any other woman been captain before you? I believe there was one in the early 2000s and I think she might have been a co-captain um, and she she didn't do the iron event. She was a pool swimmer okay. from memory. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... So never, from from what I understand, um, yeah, not just a, a single standalone female captain. That's amazing. Previously, yeah. and and how did the events go for you? Um, well, so I yeah, I think I was still at the same, probably the same level that I was in those previous years. I don't think I had increased in my ability, but I had maintained it. Um, so I was going for that third world Ironman title, and um, yeah, it was sort of down to the very last meters of the final swim leg and one of my other dear friends um Naomi Flood just sort of you know swam past me and got to the beach sort of that one or two steps and 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 one so I came second but again I had absolutely given it everything I had it would have been a fairy tale to have (laughs) finished as a world champ and to have got three in a row um or three sorry um yeah three in a row three in a row yeah um 
Yeah, but, you know, not everything is a fairy tale. And second's pretty good. Um, you know, <laughs> That'll do, yeah. Naomi went on to then she went on and um, switched into kayaking and represented Australia at two Olympic Games. So she's a formidable athlete. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and, I, and I had the utmost respect for her. Yeah. So to come second to her was um, was still amazing. And, That's awesome. And I think because I was the Australian captain and Australia ended that event as world championships, it still had that fairy tale yeah. finish for me. And then you knew you were done. I mean, was that yeah. was it like that was that was it? Yeah. yeah, and I was ready, and I was happy. Yeah. I didn't have any feelings of oh, is there something I haven't done, or is there? Yeah, it was a really nice sort of contented feeling, um, you know. And, and I was able to announce well in advance that that was going to be my retirement. So my competitors made it really special for That's me, nice, yeah. um, you know, the media and and all of that. So yeah, it was it was a perfect kind of ending. And I mean transitioning from a you know training god knows how many hours a day um a couple of things i guess you know you obviously had conversations with all your endorsements you know that those i'm assuming would go away at some stage not training six seven hours a day um when you came back home like readjusting from being this high profile best in the world professional athlete to a civilian i guess Mm -hmm. how, how was that did you struggle with that no, not like some um, athletes um, do. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think I had, again, I had really mentally pre- prepared for it. Mm. And in, in a strange way, I just really looked forward to, for the first time ever in my life, living what I would consider a normal, <laughs> yeah. a normal life. So yeah. the idea of getting a job like a Monday to Friday, like 8 to 4 or 9 to 5, I was like, this is going to be great. And, um, it's easy, actually. <laughs> yeah, because I'd not, you know, I'd never, I had picked up little bits of work here and there yeah. through my sporting career, but, you know, not um, not like a full-time sort of position. So I was excited by that and, um, you know, I was fortunate to um, find work and I, yeah, and I just enjoyed that really um, different change in routine, which is what I think I was looking for and I needed at that time. Um, Yeah, so, yeah, I I didn't struggle like I thought um, potentially I might have. So you now work for the University of Sunshine Coast. Was that that kind of the role that you went into straight away? No, I I actually worked um, for a building company here on the coast. Okay. It was, um, you know, through through a friend who um, employed me in that first position and, and I loved that, and I learnt heaps in that in that first year. And but my, I think I sort of always had in my mind that the university was a place I really wanted to. I wanted to be part of something really big. And on yep. the coast at that time, you know, we had our Sunshine Coast Council, and we had the university, and they were these two really big entities. And I, I wanted to be part. If I thought if I'm going to make an impact now in you know potentially in a in a career in a different way, yep. I wanted to be part of something something big like that. So um, yeah, sort of. It took it took me a while to get in to get an in at the university. Yeah. It's, um, amazing place to work, but um, yeah, you do have to have to work for it to get to get the positions there. And so, um, so yeah. how did that role come about? Um, it was actually through um, a friend of mine who's a sports psychologist. Yeah, there's a lecture there at the university. A really close friend of mine, and the physician came up, and um, she's like, you know, you should apply for this. I think you'll be amazing at it. Yeah. And um, I sort of thought it was a bit. Um, out of still out of my depth at that stage. I was mm. like, oh, I don't know if I'm. But anyway, I went for it and and got that job and um, you know, learnt learnt things very quickly <laughs> on the way and um and yeah, I've sort of moved to different roles um throughout my time at the uni. Um, the high performance 
sport program that I now work in mm. um, has only been going coming up to um, next year will be the fourth year. So it's only quite a new program. So as soon as that started up a few years ago, um, my boss now um, sort of said to me, you know, do you want to come and move over into this department mm. at the uni? We're starting this high-performance sport program. And I think I'd said yes before he'd finished his sentences. <laughs> it's absolutely where I've always wanted to work. And A lot of the Olympic swimmers are based out of the that, yeah, the uni, right, so they? the uni, um, Coast Uni is um, a regional high-performance centre of excellence yep. for Swimming Australia. So, yeah, there's there's a, an Olympic program um, being run from the uni and we've got 14 um, different sporting partnerships out there, um, like the Lightning like Netball yeah. and Australian Cycling Academy and quite a few of those um, national-level um, teams. For the American people, yes, netball is televised and TV and huge in Australia. Um, <laughs> true story. So, so just for, I guess, a, a question for people struggling with doing new things, right? I mean, uh, you obviously, your identity, going back to that word, was the top athlete going across to do something new. Obviously, I mean, I'm assuming you had the fear. Any advice for people who want to take a complete pivot in career and, and do something that they out of their comfort zone? Like, did you have that imposter syndrome in the early days? Like, I shouldn't really be here. You can see your fear. Yes. <laughs> But how did you manage that? And just any advice for people who who just, you know, all it is that first step to pivot to something else? Yes, certainly. And I think, um, yeah, and again, it comes down to, you know, you do, you'll always have, you know, I think people who I don't think naturally on our, maybe on our own, we have those thoughts. But, you know, I, I had some, um, you know, outside voices sort of suggesting that it's my sporting career that got me that position at the university initially. and. Yeah. And I knew, um, you know, from my time as a student there, um, you know, I graduated as the alumni of the year. So I had achieved excellence in my um, academic career. Yeah. So I knew I had those credentials, even though, you know, other people might might not have at the time. They might not have known the person um, that I am outside of being an athlete. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess I just had to, you know, um, shut off, you know, when you hear sort of hear those things and just go back to that internal belief that, well, even if I'm, um, you know, not completely at the top of my game in this world yet, like I will be. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think, you know, going back to, you know, when we were chatting about, you know, your purposes and your passions, um, I don't know if it is realistic to have just one for your whole life. You know, that, that life as an athlete was my purpose and my passion yeah. for that time. Um, and there'll be a part of me that, you know, that that is always going to be that. But I thought there's always room for a different direction and a different path and different passion. And, um, yeah, so it was, you know, and like anything, you, you know, if your rise to the top is really quick, it's probably not going to last a long time. Yeah. So, you know, it's been a 10-year journey for me at the uni to be in the position that I am now. And, yeah. um, and I'm just really grateful for that. And I'm still learning so much from the people who are um, still around me out in that environment. I mean, I think that's that's awesome because I know, uh, you know, a lot of friends and ex-professional athletes and, and a lot of them get stuck in the heyday. A lot of them, all they want to talk about is what happened on that day or that match and and, and don't like it when they travel overseas and no one knows who they are. Mm-hmm. It's bizarre. So, I mean, I don't know if you found that with a lot of professional, ex-professional athletes. You don't have to throw anyone on the bus. I'll throw people I know. But it's, it's, it's so refreshing that, you know, it's like, hell, that's a chapter – and I personally, if that got you the opportunity there, then well, why not? You know, you, to me, and, and this is when I come back to kids with the university degree with my kids, I say, well, study whatever you want to study. At least it shows someone that you've got commitment, you can achieve something. Absolutely. And, and through your, ex, you know, excelling at that, it means, well, 
shit, if she puts her mind to this, she's going to be damn good, right? Yeah, it was an education in itself. Yeah. And, you know, the skills potentially that I'd learnt in um, that time as an athlete, yeah. um, you know, I would hope are really valuable to an employer um, or to a program or whatever I can put my work into. So, um, yeah, you know, if, if it is a stepping stone to a career, then it might be for a reason because those skills that you've, you've learned are really, really valuable skills. Um, yeah, so I just, I think, um, like I said, I think, you know, whatever path gets you to yeah. where you are, there's always something to be learned from from whatever direction it is that you've, or path that you've taken. So what is a day in the life in high performance? Like, cause, I mean, for me, that's like nerd heaven, right? I mean, what is your, are you dealing with the, the young athletes? What, are, what does the day look like now for you? Um, yeah, so there's sort of two aspects of it. We've mm. got a student athlete program. So um, any student who is studying at the uni who is competing in sport at a national level um, is invited into the student athlete program. And yeah. so there's extra support there with training, but also with their education so that they can manage the both. Um, when I was going through university, a program like this didn't exist, so it was really challenging to get that flexibility around assignments and exams to say, look, I'm going to be in Italy, I'm going to be in Germany, and I can't sit that exam. And sometimes the response to me was, oh, you'll just have to repeat that subject. And I'm like, but there was no online they, learning. No, there was really no <laughs> yeah. flexibility. And, um, and the idea of, you know, having a dual career as an athlete, um, you know, and, and a student, that, that sort of didn't really yeah. exist and um, a lot of my fellow competitors didn't take that path of going to university and, you know, life after sport wasn't such a big thing as it is now, knowing that career as an athlete is pretty short-lived, so you've got to yep. um, prepare yourself for that next stage. So, yeah, there's a, there's an element of um, fostering that program for the student-athletes and then there's the second part of it, which is partnering with those um, teams where a lot of those athletes might have finished their study or for whatever reason are just at that next level of their sport where yep. they can't put it in at the moment, so those Olympic teams – um, things and so it's um, partnering with those to sort of help those athletes yeah make it to that next level classic so I, I mean where I live on the coast I see a lot of international cycling teams come you, know, you see them training obviously in, in, in their winter in Europe do you have any connection with those those international teams that come over or is it just Australian focused sports no definitely and the uni is becoming known um, as one of those amazing training centers yeah. because of the facilities that we have and obviously the climate to train here so not just internationally but a lot of domestic teams um you know in their pre-season um or um you know just different training camps even yeah. in the middle of their season will come here um to the uni to base themselves to train i see um, i see all the skinny guys riding together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> like so a lot of europe i mean i'm assuming a european pro cycling team yeah and it is it's an amazing place and you sort of yeah, when you see athletes like that all the time, you do kind of yeah. take it for granted in that you're just like, that's the norm. <laughs> yeah, my, my, my pivot of my uh, perving at athletes was not as good as your uh, Olympic story, but I was went around the Nike campus just before the Olympics and all the Olympic, it was just mm. like, you know, Amazing. these like freaks of nature. It yeah. Was like, and my mate who I was with was like, you can't talk to anyone. It's, you know, it's, I was like, oh, 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 he said, no, no, don't look at them. I'm like, um, it's crazy but the good thing like seeing them day in and day out in uni is you, you know you get to know them as people and they are mm. just like the rest yeah. of us they really are yeah like we do sort of see them as these incredible athletes which they are but they're just people as well so uh, before we pivot to becoming a mom um how do the modern day i mean we've alluded to it a lot with the social media how do the modern day especially the younger athletes deal with that additional load um of of having to be visual getting mm-hmm you know, trolled, um, 
is it a huge effect on them? And, and I mean, I'm assuming it is. How, how, how do you guys help them manage that? Yeah, it really is. And there's obviously the two sides of it. You know, some of the athletes do it really well and, and use it to their advantage. But if you're not someone who is comfortable in that self-promotion, you know, I think social media, a lot of it does come down to self-promotion and that's something that a lot of people find, you know, quite uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, some people are brilliant at it and just, you know, just take it in as, as part of being an athlete and and by doing so they attract some amazing sponsors and and their careers seem to exist regardless of their, um, their results, their results yeah. at times because they're, they almost become experts in um, in what they expose people to and that becomes, um, you know, what people follow them for, yeah. not always their results. And I think that's an incredible skill that, that some young athletes have um, and I, I admire them for it because, yeah. you know, there, there are some times when you're not going to have amazing results and they've, they've almost developed themselves as a business. Um, well, I mean, I, I'm, I went straight back to remember Maria Sharapova. Mm. I mean, I don't think she won anything. No. But she was probably one of the top paid Nike athletes so. just because Man of her, women, you know, yeah. her and uh, what is it, Iglesias, whatever it was. But, yeah. but the way she promoted herself as a brand. As a brand. And that's probably before social media, but she was yeah, hugely, hugely paid. But, yeah. but she was just this... You know, this this they are the soft brand. Yeah. So I think, you know, in terms of when you were asking how you help athletes with that, I think it's also just to let them know that um, you know, if if that is, you know, not everyone wants to make a career out of sport and that's yeah. fine too. If you just want to do sport um for sport, but not necessarily for, for money or for a career, that's that's completely fine too. But if you do, I think to see yourself um, as a brand, like yeah. sort of take yourself away from, from who you are, take take that as a brand and it's the brand that you're creating. Because I think you know, quite naturally, we don't um, want to tell everyone how good we are, and that's why people struggle with that. Yeah. But if you just break the two down, you know, this is you as the brand, as an athlete, and this is you as the person, and um, you can still be humble and modest, but this is the brand that you're creating. And I think that's what I've tried to um, teach to some of the young athletes that, you know, it is okay. Like, your results are really interesting. What you do on a day to day basis is really interesting to a lot of people. And so don't be shy to put that out yeah. there. And, um, yeah, the people the people will let you know if what you're putting out there is interesting or not, right? Well, just think of Elvis, you know, you judge yeah. Elvis. I mean, I, the way I, and I'm useless for social media, I'm trying to get better, but the way I've tried to process it personally is it's business media. It's like the most amazing it's platform to, to, to reach people, um, you know, reach, engage, but then disconnect. It's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, yes, it's you coming through, but it's not a true reflection of who you are. Exactly. And I yeah. often wonder, you know, what my life might have, how, you know, my um, life as an athlete might have differed yeah. had that existed. Because like you said, once I did retire, everything drops away and you just become like anybody else. And I, I was quite happy with that because that wasn't a side of my sport that I particularly enjoyed. Um, but, you know, not long after I retired and I was, you know, talking to different athletes and things and I would say to them, like when I – um, retired after that big event, I, you know, I couldn't even take a video on my phone. Like, I don't think there was even camera phones. I, yeah. I had to find an internet cafe and email my coach. And they were like, what's an internet cafe? <laughs> and, like, yeah, I don't have any footage even it's of so that. Good, yeah, yeah. And, it, and it was just, like, literally, like, a few years later and the world had changed yeah. so much for what athletes are um, experiencing now. Like, if you've bombed out and you've had a bad race, the whole world knows no, about no, it before, you, mean, you, before you even got yeah, to finish. Yeah, before you even finished, mm-hmm. whereas I had time to process it, get my thoughts together, email my coach, and, and that was how it was then. I actually had the conversation with someone yesterday about, you know, kids growing up and having teenagers, and I'm saying, 
like I'm thankful for us because we could, you know, do what you wanted to do, misbehave. No one would know, right? It was yeah. just you, you, A, you, you were an, an anonymous and B, you compared yourself to a tiny group of people, your peers within That's your right. school or your rival school. Whereas, you know, just looking at my daughters, they, they comparing themselves to another 15 year old somewhere else on the planet with like 2 billion followers. And that's like normal. Mm. And I'm like, no, it's just, I don't, I just feel blessed that we grew up in a different yeah. era where it was just, you know, you could be you and just your peers. Yeah. And we were able to experience like what it is like now and what it was like then, mm. but to know that, um, life hasn't actually changed. It's just the perception of what you think people's lives are yeah. because of how it's portrayed to you. Um, but these people don't have lives that are infinitely better than, than, than before. Yeah. It's just the way it's perceived and that the way that you look at it. Um, so I think at least having the both <laughs> perspectives, whereas people who have just grown yeah. up with it don't, yeah. don't know. No, it's, it's, it's yeah. I mean, but having said that on this, on this weekend, there was a disposable camera wow. that they brought up. And I'm like, well, why are you doing that? No, no. And, like, you know, we had to wind it and a flash sort of go. I, they, they brought, and I was like, this is crazy. Cool. I, I, I was like, let me take a picture of the iPhone because, so you can actually see it. Yeah. It was bizarre. Anyway, it's enough about teenagers. So becoming a mom, you want to talk about that? How did that change your, uh, change your life? Yeah. And um, going back to your previous question about, you know, why I retired when I did, that oh. was also another massive factor is I always really wanted to have kids. Yeah. And, you know, I was getting to, I was, you know, my mid twenties and, and, um, and I kind of knew that having, you know, been that level athlete for such a long time, um, you know, just talking to other, um, girls who were just a bit ahead of me, yeah. um, you know, they would sort of talk about how that can affect your fertility. And, um, you know, sometimes you don't know until you've stopped racing, um, potentially sometimes how much damage you've actually done to yourself. It's a lot more spoken about now. Yeah. Is that just because you had such a low body fat? Mm. Is, is that what it is? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And just that volume and that level, yeah. you know, your, your body, um, you know, it can shut off things that are not needed at that time. So it's your cycle and it just yeah. stops because Absolutely. you're so, oh, right. okay. Absolutely. And I was really aware of that. And I just sort of thought, oh, like, you know, being a mom is something that from a really young age I just knew yeah. You know, I wanted to wanted to be a mum and, um, you know, wanted to not um, leave it too late in life because you th- there are just so many unknowns. And I, I think I really respected um, the fact that not everyone gets the opportunity to be a be a mum. And um, yeah, so I think that was also a big factor. I thought, yeah, and it, and it was actually, you know, four years. I was twenty nine that it took till I fell pregnant. Um, oh wow! Okay. Yeah. Did you have so- to go the fertility route or? Not quite, but, um, yeah, definitely like a lot of, um, you know, different appointments and yeah. different advice. And it was kind of getting to that stage where it was like, is that the next step um, for me? So, Which is, a, I mean, my best friend, Safa, growing up, his, they, they struggled, right? And it was a brutal journey, you know, the whole IVF and the cycles. Yeah. And, um, it's, it's, it's one of those stories here all the time where they eventually gave up and were going to adopt and went away for the weekend just to, and then she got pregnant. Yeah. And, you know, it was just, and they had two kids. They've got two kids now, but just the, lo- the load of the, on the marriage and everything yeah. was huge. Right? Yeah. And um, a lot of those um, girls that I spoke about, um, you know, Christy and, and Naomi. and The wrong Christy. We've been able to share beautiful experiences and, and bonded in other ways yeah. through, because we've all, well, a lot of us have had similar struggles with, you know, falling pregnant and miscarriages and, and different things like that, wow. that potentially, um, you know, I, I don't know if we can say for sure that it was because of what, you know, what level we reached in sport. Um, but, yeah, we've, a lot of us have had kind of that similar 
experience um, into motherhood. And are they all good kids now? Yeah, yeah. So Christy does. Um, Naomi, um, yeah, is currently pregnant. So, um, yeah, it's it's a really nice um, thing to then share that experience yeah. with these girls. So how was it becoming a mom? It was um, probably different to what I expected. Um, I don't mean in saying that. I don't know really what I expected. Um, <laughs> you can't prepare. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No, but... Um, I think you know because I felt like I was really I was really ready and I was definitely very much wanting to have kids and um, my first son Eddie um, he was a really really difficult birth and um, then he, he had really bad reflux and colic and um, and I didn't kind of know that that wasn't just your typical baby I was like wow this is hard like this baby never stops crying never sleeps like I can't put him down. And so I didn't really seek a lot of help because so I was like, this must just be what babies are like. <laughs> Excuse and, me laughing, but I know the pain. I'm like, yeah, oh, God, yeah. Unless you had a baby with reflux, it's just. I haven't. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, but I can. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so I struggled. I really yeah. found it really, really, really hard. Um, you know, we had went to sleep schools and all sorts of, so many different specialists. Um, and it just ended up being something that he kind of had to grow out of. But it was about 10, 11 months before he did yeah. and um so you didn't sleep for no, 11 months no <laughs> not a nice human no, no it was just was really and so as much as I wish it was a beautiful time to enjoy I yeah. really found it so hard so um yeah I mean he, and he's been an absolute perfect sleeper ever since and he's and he's an amazing child yeah um but you had another one yeah and I sort of thought I kind of always thought I wanted more than one yeah I didn't know how many but you know, maybe two was <laughs> it. And I thought if I leave it like a big gap, I'm not going to want to do that to myself again. So I just thought I'm just going to have two. Um, so, yeah, Pippa was born. Um, yep. They were a little bit little bit under two years apart. And um, thankfully she didn't have any of the reflux or colic. And I did things really differently with her um, in the sense that I like I tried to do everything that you, you think you're supposed to do with mm. the first child um, what where, the books say. Yeah, yeah, whereas I just surrendered to it with Pip and she, you know, she wasn't a great sleeper and she just wanted to sleep on me. So I just would literally sit on the couch for my days and let her sleep and I would feed her. So for that first kind of year and a half of, of um, Pip being um, young, yeah, um, yeah, I sort of didn't really leave the house, which now looking back was not good for my mental health because yeah. I just spent, you know, days attending to weeks, attending to months in my dressing gown giving everything that I could to yes. so this baby would be settled and comfortable. And and it was also just a coping mechanism for myself because of how difficult it was the first time around when I did try to do the things that other mothers are doing, the mother's groups and the play groups, and um, that was so hard with a really unsettled baby. So I kind of surrendered to any of that stuff and um, and just did what I could do you know, yeah. inside the home to um, to keep my babies really comfortable and happy. And um, But without knowing it, you know, those that turned into years then when I had not really done much to actually leave the house. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, obviously sort of an introverted nature. Um, at, at the time, were you, were you still working at the uni or did you take a maternity leave or how did, how did that work? And, and secondly, do you think you'd, well, I mean, uh, as an extreme extrovert, but even during COVID when you, can't go anywhere it's crazy what it does to your mental health that's right even just you know sort of staying inside 
um, for those limited times, which for me during COVID weren't as much as I restricted myself as a mum staying yeah. inside. And, um, yeah, that's a, I've not really done that comparison in my own mind, but I know. I just wanted to be in the bush. Like I wanted to walk up a mountain. Yeah. I wanted to be in a forest. You know, I mean, I still surfed every day, but still, I just, that feeling of it freaked me out. Yeah. So, really, I did sort of years of COVID. (laughs) So, you were conditioned. Yeah. But, um, you know, looking back now, I can appreciate probably how damaging that was, um, you know, to myself. As we know now, it's not not great for people to be stuck inside and to be isolated and to be alone. And, um, yeah, and I, you know, and I, I kind of thought I didn't really ask for a lot of help with my with my kids because you know everyone else seemed to be managing all right mm. with theirs and so um, yeah I just sort of got through it the best kind of way that I could. Um, so I guess you know in, in hindsight for anyone who resonates and are, and is struggling, what would you do differently? I mean, would you reach out for help? Would you get? I mean, what what are the strategies that you wish you'd probably put in place? Yeah, that's a really good question because. Um, you know, it wasn't necessarily just, um, you know, my babies that were really hard, but mm. there was other things happening in my environment, um, you know, in my marriage and different things like that, yeah. which, um, you know, which weren't helping kind of my situation. And so, but I think, you know, if you, for me, I sort of, I did feel really alone and really unsupported and um, and just really lost. Like I, I didn't even really know, like, I remember thinking at the time, like, there needs to be something for young mums, especially who aren't sleeping and, yeah. like, but there's actually no, I was like, I just need to go and check in somewhere and get some help, but I'm like, there's no place that, that exists. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's a bit of a helpless feeling. Um, but in saying that, you know, I didn't I didn't reach out a lot to even my own GP. Like, there, there might be um, mm. resources and, and more help available, but um, I didn't, I certainly didn't know of it at the time. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I probably could have really leaned on, you know, friends and and family more than I did. I think had people probably understood um, how I was feeling, they probably would have been, you know, too willing, as we know, our friends, you know, too willing to actually help, you know, had I been better at sort of saying, you know, can you do this or can you do that? But isn't that the irony for when you're in your darkest moments, Um, you know, generally when you speak to friends after it, they're like, oh, shit, you should have told me. Yeah, I know. Um, but, but when you're in that space, and I'm speaking for myself personally, yeah, you, the, the last thing you actually want to do is speak to people or talk to people. It's yeah. this weird kind of double-edged sword where that's what you need, but when you're in those dark holes, you just want to be alone. Yeah, and, you know, and there's all sorts of probably different areas that you can relate to it in your life where whatever it is that you're going through and whatever, you know, potentially dark place you're in, mm. Um, you kind of think, well, like if I reach out to this person, well, what can they do anyway? Like, and because you sort of think that you are quite helpless, you probably aren't, but mm. that's what you're thinking. You're like, there's actually nothing they can do to help me anyway. So what's the actual point of reaching out, which is the dangerous mindset mm. to be in because, of course, there's always something someone can do to help you. But exactly. at the time, that's what I was thinking. I was like, well, yeah, I've got, you know, I've got beautiful friends, but what would I actually get them to do? Like there's nothing that, you know, you can help me with. Well, it's just, yeah, it's just it's giving you that space, right? Mm. And and something which when when we we're chatting on the phone, you know, about this podcast is is something that struck me. You said for seven years you didn't train, no. um, which is which, you know, your your friend the endorphins and just maybe having someone to sit there so you can not even if it's flogging yourself but just walking along the promenade or something. Do you just want to talk about you know? Obviously, you you're all in person. Um, how that happened, I guess, in a way, and and 
how you'd do it differently or mm-hmm. if you would. Yeah, and it certainly wasn't like an intentional thing no, that, um, yeah. that I thought, like, that's it, I'm not going to ever exercise again. Um, but it just kind of, it's just sort of like I, I first sort of threw myself into this new career with work mm. and that was all consuming for me because, you know, I, I just chose it to be that way. And then obviously becoming a mum, that sort of became all-consuming for myself as well. And, um, and yeah, and it, was all, it was almost like that person that I was previously had just failed to exist anymore, mm. not just in terms of um, the stuff I was doing but even actually kind of who I was. Um, you know, I didn't have that confidence and that drive and, um, yeah, confidence is probably the biggest one, you know, in anything that I was trying that was new. You know, I didn't, I didn't go outside with my kids a lot because I didn't think I would cope. Yeah. So I started to fall into that place where I was like, oh, no, I can't do that because I won't cope with that and I won't, I'm not good at that, I won't cope with that. Um, and so it was actually my mum, you know, I haven't really spoken much about my mum yet because it was my dad who I did so much stuff with um, throughout my sporting career, mm-hmm. but it was mum who sort of said to me, um, my second um, child was probably getting close to two and she's like, I think you need to, you need, like, you need to get outside. <laughs> you, you need to, like, you know. And, <laughs> There's a son. And for mum to say that because yeah. mum's like, you know, she's one of those um, old school type, you know, just copes with anything. Mm. and She'll be right. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so for, for her to see me struggle, I knew I must have been really, really struggling for her to say something because she's just like, you'll be right. No, yeah. like, you know, motherhood's tough. You'll be right. That's, that's kind of mum, whereas... For her to say, like, maybe, and, and her suggestion was maybe, you know, go down to the surf club and just join in with a session once a week. Yeah. And, like, I knew to be able to do that, but, like, I had so much anxiety around leaving my kids and because they're tricky and, like, you know, so just breaking away from them for that hour because I hadn't for years and years um, was hard. And But, you know, I started, you know, one session a week and then you know, a few months later that turned into two and then that turned into three and, um, so how good was it to get in the water again? Oh, it was amazing. <laughs> yeah. Like after seven years. <laughs> seven, that's crazy. It's no. crazy. You know, and it was not that I never went to the beach, but rarely, yeah. like really rarely. And um, Well, you're probably managing kids, right? Yeah. You weren't just in the ocean. No, exactly. No. It was my focus was so, um, you know, in a different place. And, um, you know, and I connected with a really amazing coach who has become one of my absolute best friends who mm. didn't know me, you know, previously as an athlete, you know, and just kind of saw me as this new mom and, and kind of just encouraged me to come down and, um, you know, get back into some Did you not know you had world titles? No, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> not at the time. You'll be fine. The surf's <laughs> And I, you know, and I had lost a lot of, I had no strength. I had no skills. And, That's you know, funny. we were doing some some running sessions. I couldn't run up a hill without walking. I yeah. could not do one push-up. You know, I, mean, I, I was maybe okay on my board and ski just yeah. from a lot of muscle memory. Yeah. But, you know, to look at you would have been like, who is this person? But whatever reason, this friend could sort of see um, something you yeah. know, worth investing in. Yeah. Not not because I was going to become good, but just because, you know, and for the first time in a really long time, I was like, oh, you know, I am actually worthy of some time and some attention and some mm. focus and um, and some acknowledgement kind of thing. And so um, that was sort of my journey back into getting my body strong, which helped me to get my mind strong. Um, so yeah, so it really, um, massively, I think sort of saved my life from where it was headed, um, just to get back into some sport and some fitness, um, and, and around some people who were reminding me that, you know, I, I had some self-worth and I had yeah. some, cause I, I had completely lost all of that, um, 
yeah, and so that really helped me to get my mind strong again and, um, and to sort of kind of, I think, readjust the path that I was headed on. So I just want to pull back and, and highlight that point because it's so important to men, women, anyone who gets, yeah, I guess lost in a marriage and lost with kids, you know, because you do, um, they become your identity. It's so, so, so important to find time for yourself. It's yeah. like the key thing, right? You know, whether it's a 20-minute walk on the beach or an hour session, it's just it's it's one of the things that, in my experience, people only start doing when they come out of a marriage once they're divorced. Mm. You know, but if you can do that when you're in it or when you're in the in the trenches in the early days, um, it'll save a lot of heartbreak. Yeah, you know, definitely. personally as well as within relationships. And if you can communicate, just you know how how actually important that is, because yeah, I think we do just sort of you know give away our identity and you know not not purposely but that yes. just get that just falls away yeah um you know and for me you know up until recently my kids had no idea about who I was before I had them you know even in my home now I don't have a, a medal a trophy a photo and nothing where's the cereal box but, yeah I want the cereal and box. because that was just it was like literally that that yeah. was closed and that was never spoken about ever again and so um yeah I just think it's it is like you said it's it can save you a lot of heartache when you, if you can just, you know, and I, I think sometimes mums are sort of told or made to feel that you can be quite selfish if you're not throwing everything into it. And I think that's the complete opposite. For me, I was I was just existing as a mum beforehand because um, I, I just wasn't being who I actually am. And now my kids actually are getting to know me for the first time. Yeah. Um, and I've got so much more to give to them um, by being who I am. And I, I, I mean, the thing is, you know, single dad, I can resonate with that because the the, re- the reason I say that is because you, you know, you, you for, for me, I didn't want my kids to end up in a broken home, right? Mm-hmm. But they ended up. But then, what happens is you end up giving all of yourself to them so that they're comfortable, and then you're not in peace because, like, you know, whereas my kids now, you know, I've got them well trained, but they say, like, Dad, go for a soup, or we want you to go cut, mm-hmm. or we want you to go full because they know. But I'll come back in an hour's time and I'll be glowing and, and that just resonates out to everything in life. And I think it's so important for them that they know that, that I, I need to look after myself and I need to be happy. Because the lesson I tell them is that they're the only people that can make themselves happy. Mm. And the sooner you figure that out in life, um, the easier it becomes, I believe. So I think it's, it's a very important lesson for everyone to learn and it's something that took me 44 years to learn. Yeah. But you, you, in an unselfish way, you've got to make sure you're good and you've got that self-love and you find that time and then, yeah. and then you know, that'll ripple out into everything you do. And, you know, we want our kids to live a life of their own with purpose and passion, but if we're not finding our own purpose and passion, Amen. what kind yeah. of example is that to them? So I, I want them to see yeah. now what my passions are yeah. and what my purpose is and to see how, you know, powerful that can be for yeah. myself. And that's the irony. You think you're doing everything by checking all the boxes, but you're actually doing them a disservice because you, you're you not showing up, right? Mm, exactly. Yeah, that's mm. awesome. So so let's talk about all the accolades that happened. You know, obviously, wait, wait, let me read these. One more word. Australian International Surf Life Saver Hall of Fame, uh, Order of Australia, Australia Sports Hall of Fame, huge accolades at a young age. Um, did those all, so congratulations, did those all come through when you were in your darkest moments or did they come through when you were on the way out? And and I'm assuming based on the timeline that I have, they came through when you were probably in your darkest moment. Was it weird that you were getting all this stuff and should be this, mm-hmm. you know, the cereal box person, but you weren't that person anymore or didn't mm-hmm. feel like that person? How did you handle that? 
Yeah, they, they certainly, you know, they came through at a time when I was really disconnected to the person who was being recognised in those, you know, International Hall of Fame and, yeah. um, you know, um, member of the Order of Australia and, and those kind of, you know, incredible um, accolades and recognition. It was probably, you know, a, a huge blessing that things were still filtering through mm. from what I had achieved in all of those years, even though it was some years later that these things were happening and it kind of um, in some ways kept kind of bringing me back and um, I guess, you know, reawakening me from from that place mm. where I was. But I remember having to go down to Brisbane to receive that the Member of Order of Australia recognition and it was such a hard day because, um, you know, I had two ch- young children and um, so much anxiety having to leave them just for those few hours and um, it, it really made it like a different day to as you would expect going down there and receiving this um, huge, award, yeah. huge award where the whole time I'm just thinking, it's okay. Like it was, um, yeah, I, I was still in that stage of yeah. kind of struggling to um, be the best mum that I could with these babies that I was finding incredibly difficult. Um, but it, it, it was sort of those stepping stones that I needed to keep propelling me forward in what is my career now in sport and yeah. high performance sport and, um, you know, what I've learned from um, receiving those different awards and accolades I can, you know, pass on and, and build on into what I'm sort of building for myself now in this direction that I'm going. That's awesome. So uh, a difficult subject divorce mm. um none of us enter into marriage planning to get divorced um you obviously you know that happened in your life um uh, you know there's there's always a moment right whether that uh, it's an affair or a conversation or the person didn't pass the tomato sauce whatever it is there's a moment there's that straw that broke the camel's back was it was there a moment for you and 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 i mean it's it's never an easy journey for everyone hence me doing all of this i just want to talk a little bit about that if you if you want to. Um, yeah, like for me, honestly, I don't think I've got a standout moment actually. Like, and um, yeah, everyone's, I guess, journey through something like that is really different. And for some people it is like an event or an incident or something. For me it was sort of just a really long period of, you know, what, what I believe was, you know, was happening to yeah. me and... Um, I guess there is that moment where you kind of realise the extent. You know, sometimes you're yeah. going through something and you're not you're not noticing what's what's happening and and what it's doing to you and all these different kind of things until you get to this point and you are so much further down the track and you're just like, why? You know, why am I feeling like this? Why is this happening? Mm-hmm. You know, what 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 has happened? And um, yeah, I guess as I sort of explained during that time when. Um, I was sort of reconnecting with who I am through sport and, um, you know, starting to feel a bit sort of strong within myself when I started to talk about um, different things that were really hurting me and Mm. um, trying to communicate, um, you know, a bit of a way forward from, from where we had become and that for me that wasn't that wasn't met with an agreement that was sort of met with conflict and, um, and criticism and, um, so I kind of knew, um, you know, in life I couldn't continue forward with things the way that they were. Yeah. Um, and so I was still really hopeful. I think, you know, I never thought, all oh, right, the only way out of this is divorce. Like I think I was still really hopeful that, um, you know, we turn a corner 
um, we'd meet each other halfway or, or, or whatever. Like, doesn't even have to be quite halfway, whatever, we just to meet each other. 60 and 40 say, works, right? Yeah, whatever, whatever it is. Like, just to be met somewhere yeah. and, and acknowledge what you're sort of saying and, and what you kind of need as a person and as a, as a mum and as a wife and, and all of these things that are fundamentally important to you, um, just to be heard and, and, mm. and recognized. And for me, unfortunately, um, you know, that, that didn't happen. And, um, it was it was more of a case of um, you know the, the cracks that were there became much bigger yep. once they were spoken about and um, yeah and I guess even though it, it was sort of myself who was sort of saying um, you know these things are crippling me and I can't I can't see I couldn't actually it wasn't like a decision do I stay or do I go I just couldn't actually see a way of living in, in the way that I was yeah. so um, when that kind of wasn't wasn't met with um, some sort of an agreement, but it was just conflict. You know, that was kind of the moment, yeah. um, and, and that decision was almost taken out of my hands. Um, you know, because of the response that um, I got from from that. So, yeah, so that's kind of how it all sort of unfolded for me. And um, you know, my ex partner just you know took that and, and moved on very instantly. Mm. And and so that then that was that was kind of. The moment when it wasn't until that moment that I was like, oh, you know, this is actually it's done, yeah. that's, that's done. Yeah. Um, there's, there's obviously no working back together towards any of this. Um, yeah, and so that's been um, coming up to three years now. Okay. Yeah. So. So this could be a projection question because it's that's how I felt. Um, but anyway, um, for you, obviously, you know, as distinctions and distinctions in academics, world champion. It obviously not failed at match right? you the the and we spoke about it the white picket fence right none of us walked down the aisle thinking this is not going to work how did you internally put the pieces back together to say well you know things do sometimes need to end you know relationships do need to end did you did you struggle with that was that a huge wrestle with the kids and there's a lot of questions in there but how, how did you in the early days help you know try to process that just for you know people listening mm-hmm. in a similar position yeah, it was um, it was obviously a huge thing because you know in my family, my parents have been married for you know, forty five plus yeah. years, and they're really fortunate that you know I know lots of people are in very long marriages, which isn't always something to celebrate. <laughs> and they're miserable. Number, numbers don't necessarily beat <laughs> anything, but my parents are really fortunate. They've got a beautiful relationship. Yeah. Like they just got it right. They found the right person, and they built this amazing life together. And so trying to explain it to them, it was really hard because they had not experienced what I was experiencing and um, they couldn't quite see what I was saying. And, um, and I, yeah, for the first time in my life, I was actually having to, you know, to not, I've always taken my parents' advice as we've spoken about it and rightfully so. It's been really sound, really solid advice, but they were sort of, um, you know, erring on the side of, you know, is it actually that bad? Is it, and it took a lot for me to explain to them what was happening for them to go yeah okay we get it yeah we get it um and we support you um and in terms of yeah obviously the kids i don't think you ever sort of stop processing you know how this is affecting them Mm -hmm. and um but for me i kind of knew what they were witnessing and and what was being modeled to them was was not my idea Mm -hmm. of love or marriage and i thought if i don't want them growing up thinking this is what they should expect um for their lives um, and this is what they should aspire to have, um, you know, for either of us. 
um, you know, for me or for their dad, like, you know, I think what that, I want them to know what love looks like and it doesn't necessarily mean a 45-year marriage. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, for them now what they see is just me on my own and it's a house full of love. Like it's, you know, um, there's nothing – I don't feel like they think there's anything missing yeah. um, when, they're, when they're with me in that instance. And so, um, but, you know, with, with being who I am and, and having a really big profile – coming from a, a family with very, very traditional values um, and, you know, and the situation that I was in, I never actually got that time where I thought I, I failed at this. Like I still think I gave it everything. I, I actually mm. gave all of myself to it, probably too much of myself that I lost myself. Um, and to actually, you know, come out of it, mm. I, I'm actually, instead of having that feeling of failure, I actually feel really proud of myself for being that strong. Yeah. Um, it's definitely more strength than I've needed for any Ironman race, for any world title campaign. It, like, it, like absolutely, as you know. Um, <laughs> People don't get it. It's brutal. Yeah, yeah. it is. And, um, but, you know, and there's a, there's a reason, I guess, why people stay in quite toxic places yeah. because the courage you need to get out is, is immense and, you know, perhaps it is what I learned through being an athlete and, you know, you need a lot of courage yeah. in a lot of situations and um, I had to use absolutely every last bit of that courage and that bravery to, um, yeah, get out of the situation that I was in and um, continue on with a life for myself. So from a recovery purpose, um, you know, what's worked for you over the next like Talk therapy, breathing, meditation, you know, obviously the being in the ocean, just, just any, you know, uh, always looking back, it's easier, but what, what are the things that actually sort of help you find your groove again and, and get you back on the track to where you are today? Um, I don't think I coped greatly. So, I, you know, I probably didn't have the best strategies in place. I, I, dr- I drank way too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, thankfully, I'm not, like, I'm not a drinker. Maybe that wouldn't help. But, um, yeah, but, you know, I, I, I became really unwell um, mm. because of you know, the stresses and, um, but not the non-eating and, and things that you're not purposely doing to yourself. But, um, yeah, I, I did damage myself with some, some health issues because of, um, you know, of that situation. So, I, you know, I think I managed by, and, you know, and as I said through sport, I've always been a really private person mm. and there was a lot of things said about, you know, why a marriage was ending and who was at fault and, similar to stuff that's said when you're an athlete and people are trying to bring you down or whatever yeah. whatever it is. And I just thought, um, you know, my, my main objective was just to not let anything change who I am. Um, it's really easy to become very bitter and angry and, and to fight fire with fire. And I just I didn't want to do any of that. And one of my closest friends um, who, you know, was there for me from that day one I sort of said to her really on, if you sense that I'm losing myself, please let me know. Like I don't want to, um, I don't want to, you know, lose any of my integrity or beliefs through what's happening to me, what's going on. You know, I just want to stay kind and fair, and um, and I think that has been the best, the best way because you know you can be comfortable with who you are and what you're doing, and um, you know you don't. You don't have to be at war even though, you know, you're feeling really hurt and all of those kind of things. So I think for me my strategy was just to, just to not lose, like not let something yeah. change me and, you know, not become bitter but become better because of it. 
I mean, it's it's easier said than done with a bit of hindsight, but because you are under attack, right? It just yeah. feels like you're getting, for me personally, you're getting whacked from every angle constantly. It's just like, oh. So it's 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 hard to stay calm and zen. It in is. Early days. But with every communication, you know, you have a, it's like all that stuff that you can't control. You can control how you respond Amen. to things. Yeah. And um, sometimes it's really difficult to respond in kindness, really, really difficult to respond in kindness, but I think it's a choice yeah. that you can still choose to do and, um, you know, and we're still modelling behaviour to our kids and um, I think it's the best lesson they can learn is watching two people go through something like this um, in different ways to handle a situation so, so one of the things I live by now is no one triggers you and you trigger yourself based on your response to yeah. what they're doing. It's not them, it's, it's your, how you, you know. It is. Easier said than done. It is. And you <laughs> have to take a couple of moments. And I'm, I've become better at that, you know, with anxiety. I'd be crippled by it. And now yeah. I go, I'll read that again tomorrow and I'll. Yeah. And yeah. you learn. You learn your coping strategies and how you can respond and not be triggered and um all of those kind of things. Flipping to a more positive note. So based on your Insta, you're a celebrant. Mm. You want to talk about that? So sorry, celebrant uh, for the international people, someone who marries people in Australia. Yeah. So how did that come about? That's something I started um, before I was actually married myself and um, because I was um, sort of transitioning from sport and, mm. and it was something that I just sort of saw one day and because of all the experience I've had as um, a public speaker and different things and you know, everyone loves love and a love story and um, I love creative writing. And I thought that would be such a fun job yeah. to put together a ceremony for people on that, you know, on that day. And um, so I sort of did my training for it thinking I'll just have that in my back pocket. I might want to do that when I'm older or yeah. as a hobby. And um, and it actually just really took off because I think um, at the time, you know, there are a lot more now, but at the time there weren't a lot of younger celebrants around and, um, and there were still not that many on the coast and, um yeah, so it, it did become a bit of a job in my, you know, earlier years after finishing sport. And, um, yeah, and I, I still, I still do it sort of to this day and mostly now just for friends and family. But, yeah. Um, it's a beautiful job to be able I'm to, sure. to do for people. So how many yeah. marriages do you think you've done? Oh, gosh, I think I've done up, up upwards of 400, maybe 500. Crazy. Yeah. Man. That's so cool. Right. Should we start wrapping things up? Yeah, I know. I've just... Yeah, but I kept you here for long enough. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's good. Great conversation. Um, so, what's next for you? What are the big plans? Yeah, um, I do. You know, I think I've sort of um, come through a bit of a, a time now, and mm. um, I've had sort of a few different things change this year. As as you all have, it's been a different kind of a year, and yeah. plenty of time to reassess and um, and sort of set some new goals for myself. So. Um, an area that I've sort of gone into after um, competitive sport is working and studying a little bit in sport integrity and mm-hmm. that's an area that I'm really passionate about. Um, so define sport integrity. So that kind of covers a lot of different things um, from, you know, code of conduct and yeah. codes of behaviour in sport to, um, you know, gambling, doping, all of those. Let's chat to the rugby league guys. Maybe. Yes. <laughs> Maybe. Oh, well, they got a very good team, I'm sure. Um, yeah, and that's and that's something that, um, you know, as, a, as an athlete you kind of experience mm. different things and, you know, our sport, I don't know, I guess it, I don't know if it's classified as contact or non-contact, but there's certainly a lot of contact that happens out there and yeah. it's, you know, you could be swimming in a race and be kind of punched in the face and that's just called racing, whereas if that happened on the street you would be charged yeah. with that. And so 
um, yeah, I just think you know there's um, a lot of a lot of work that can be done in you know in, in integrity, your sport, and that's something that um, I'm really passionate about, and um, something that I, you know I try to pass on to any younger member that I'm talking to and they often say, you know, why do you think you got all of this recognition after sport? And, yeah. and you know, there were a lot of girls who were quite similar to me in terms of results, but I sort of say I think it was how I um, performed as a person yeah. as well as an athlete yeah. um, and, if, you know, the decisions you make in those um, areas to not ever jeopardise your integrity. And, um, yeah, and I sort of really truly believe that that's why I was recognised above it above a lot of my other fellow um, competitors. And so, yeah, so I've set myself some pretty big goals in, in things that I want to do and not just, you know, my sport of surf life saving but other sports um, as well in that in that area of sports integrity. So, yeah. Sounds exciting. Yeah, we'll see, hopefully. And uh, where can people find you? Obviously, you said you're a private person. Do you have a website? I can find one. If they want to get you to speak, what's the best way to get hold of you? Yeah, no, I don't have a website and I am not great at self-promotion <laughs> or self-marketing, but um, I am on Insta and, and Facebook. And do you um, have an agent for speaking engagements? I, no, I don't. So I'm open to any sort of <laughs> contact through through my social media. Okay. Yeah, Maybe that should be my next goal. Yeah. I'll set myself up. Get an agent <laughs> or get, get a website. Yes. I mean, have you not seen the Wix app? I mean, that's easy, right? <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, as we wrap, thank you so much for your time. No it's been a thank you for cracking the female Y series. It's been an awesome conversation and thanks for being so open. Um, just a closing thought to all the men and women out there um, who, let's just say, are, are sitting on the fence about doing something new, trying something new, you know, facing that fear monster. Just any closing thoughts to, to take us home? Mm, that, that's, that's exactly when you just said that, that fear is. Um, I think if you really look at what it is that's holding you back from a decision, you know, in life you know, with your kids or work or relationships, it's often based on that fear. So um, I don't really like that word fear. I use the word courage, the positive side of it. And um, for me, you know, that's that's a word that I repeated to myself a lot when I needed it. You know, write it on your mirror, get it tattooed on you if you need to. Courage, I think, yeah, um, if you're sitting on the fence or if you're, if you're struggling um, with anything, um, stop worrying about what other people are going to say because they're not they're not living your life, they're not in your shoes and um, you really just need to, um, what was it my mum my mom, um, said to me the other day, it's better to be walking alone and following the crowd in the wrong direction and, yeah. um, and that's not something she would have always said um, previously, I think. She would have been safer in the crowd than, than walking on your own, and um, so I think, yeah, I think you know she's still learning at her age. Um, that's awesome. So that would be my advice, definitely. Don't be, don't be afraid to walk, to walk alone and have courage um, if that's the direction that you feel within your heart that you need to be going. Awesome. Thank you so much. No problems. Thanks for having me.